Powered from the Perdomo Score Studios on uh, Black Stage in Indian Trail, North Carolina, and broadcasting from down under outside in Brisbane, Australia. It's episode 100 of the Primetime Jukebox. Tonight, we celebrate this special occasion with our biggest album archaeology yet, the Beatles' landmark album, Revolver. And, as always, the Primetime Jukebox is sponsored by Perdomo Cigars. Awarded Nicaraguan Cigar of the Year in 2014 by Cigar Journal, the Perdomo 20th anniversary brand is consistently on the highest scores in the industry and is a top seller in humidors around the world. Perdomo 20th anniversary requires tobacco has been carefully hand-selected and a well-aged for a minimum of eight years. The Perdomo 20th anniversary is offered in three distinct wrappers, a smooth, creamy Ecuadorian Connecticut, a rich, earthy Cuban Sea Nicaraguan sun-grown, and a dark, oily Cuban Sea Nicaraguan Maduro. Combining these beautifully bourbon barrels wrappers with thick, high-priming binder and filler tobaccos gives each blend a balanced complexity with layers of rich flavors and smooth, elegant aromas. Perdomo Cigars is a family-owned and operated company headquartered in Miami, Florida, with manufacturing and agricultural facilities in Esteli, Nicaragua. Perdomo's highly claimed cigar brands include the Perdomo Double H 12-Year Vintage, Perdomo 20th Anniversary, Perdomo Reserve 10th Anniversary, Perdomo Abano Bourbon Barrel Aids, Perdomo Lot 23, Perdomo Menso 70, and many more. For great tasting notes and pairing information, check out the Perdomo website at www.perdomocigars.com. And by Jerry Tobacco. The authentic Corojo leaf is one of the most robust and flavorful tobacco leaves out there. During the Golden Age, the Cuba leaf of choice to make some of the world's greatest cigars. Because it is one of the most challenging ones to cultivate, it fell out of favor by the 1990s. In the Hamastron Valley in Honduras, Julio Aurora took on the challenge of growing Corojo from the original seeds, and in 2000, he successfully reintroduced authentic Corojo back to the market. With over 50 years' experience in the tobacco business, from growing and curing tobacco to cigar production, the Jerry Tobacco Farm has been able to continue to deliver products to market with authentic Corojo. Now with Jerry Tobacco, Julio and Huso bring their very own brand to market, and each contain that authentic Corojo leaf. Aladino is available in a wide variety of blends, including the latest release, the Aladino Candela. And each represent that golden age of cigars from 1947 to 1961. They're available at your local retailer. Be sure to ask for Jerry Tobacco, a legacy that is tasted in every draw. And we want to mention Tobacalera USA. Makers of iconic brands such as Monte Cristo, Romeo Julieta, H. Upman, and Aging Room Cigars. Tobacalera USA, great things are happening here. And, of course, we want to mention Drew Estate. Dark, bold, and unapologetic, Black and Cigars M81 by Drew Estate is an intense journey into the uncharted, deepest, and darkest, and heaviest depths of Maduro tobacco. This is a masterpiece collaboration between Metallica's James Hetfield, Sweet Amber Distillion's Rob Dietrich, and Drew Estate's Jonathan Drew. The all Maduro Black and Cigars M81 by Drew Estate is rich and powerful, but beautifully balanced, offering tantalizing notes of leather, chocolate, and espresso that's perfect for life celebrations and times of reflection. You can find them at your Drew Diplomat retailer, and remember, all the live stream for the Primetime Network shows is sponsored exclusively by Drew State, as well as the California Studios for the Thursday Primetime Show. Well, welcome, everybody. This is Primetime episode, Primetime Jukebox episode 100. And uh, this is an early June edition here. Uh, Will Cooper, I'm in the Perdomo Scott Studios on the black stage, and I'm joined uh, on the other side of the world and the other hemispheres by my good friend and colleague, Mr. Dave Burke. Hello, Coop. Good to hear from you. Good yep. to. Uh, I'm very excited for the show. Very excited for this album. Yeah. Oh, I am too. Uh, I love it. I love doing the album archaeology shows. Oh, I do too. And I think it was appropriate to do it here. Hey, before we get into like anything, right? I know we're getting into. 100, I got to mention something. I was reading that Aladino ad beforehand. 
I there's a music connection today. I got to talk about this, right? Ooh. So I was listening to Cigar Authority before we recorded this, right? And they have a new commercial for Aladino, right? Ooh. And th this is really so it's Dave Garofalo, Mr. Jonathan, singing a parody of "I Got You, Babe." Uh, oh, right. With Aladino cigars. Wow. You've got to check it out. It, it is it is hysterical. But they actually wrote lyrics to it. <laughs> <laughs> the guy like, about yeah, uh, you know, Corona or the Aladino. Uh, it, it was really well done. Like, I wanted to give them a shout out. You know, normally I wouldn't mention another uh, show sponsor, but it was well done, and there was a music connection, so I got to give them a shout out. It was very well done. I heard Husto signed off on it, so it I'll was have to check it out. Yeah, definitely check it out. Uh, I don't like me and you will do something like that though. But no, I think won't they, be seen. They, David Jonathan is singing this, and it's pretty good. So, uh, all right. Well, yeah, you know. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So I, I wanted before I forgot that, and we got into everything here. Um, yeah. Let's let's. Uh, yeah. But yeah, Dave. One hundred um, episodes. We started this show in the fall of two thousand nineteen. We mm. said we'd do six shows a year. Uh, you know, just see what would happen with this, and you know, I think between the chemistry we've built here. And obviously, the, the connection our audience has had with this show, um, we got to a hundred. And I guess I think I was mentioned before the uh, break. This is the third Coop show to get to a hundred episodes, and I don't know many other shows that have done that. I think we were talking possibly Federation might have done it, mm. maybe Hustler guys have done it, but we're in a select group, is what I'll say. No, it's great. It's very exciting. Yeah. For uh, yeah. Cigar Coop to get a hundred shows and to get a hundred shows on here. No, it's great. Yep, yep. Uh I mean it's it's uh I just it went you know, like I said it's been very good. We we we're almost recording at, almost at an every week pace. Mm. Um and it's amazing because you you had a very busy spring. Or yeah, you had a very busy spring. So I thought maybe we 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 kind of slow but actually I think we've been doing recording almost every week now for a while. Yeah. So. So yeah. it's worked out. Uh, I think we don't. We have no shortage of ideas. That's for sure. No, this one came no, up this not. week doing the Beatles. So, uh, which we haven't done anything related to the Beatles or a full dedicated show. Not so really. No. No. No, we haven't. So I thought, you know, when you kind of said, "What should we do?" I looked at the list and I said, "Well, we haven't done any Beatles." Um, and you know, we're doing an album market. I think we we both originally said, "Let's do White Album," which oh yeah. Did, the only problem with White Album is we would have had to do two shows. It has to do two party, yeah. Yeah, so maybe down the road we do that, but I think when you suggest let's do a revolver, it was like a no brainer to do that one. Mm. So, so I think it was a a great pick here. So, uh, I hope I'll, we thank our audience and all of these sponsors and friends of this show because it wouldn't be possible without these folks. Yeah, no, thank you very much. All the yeah. interest, there's a lot of interest in this show as well. So I hope people be satisfied and go back to their revolver records and have a listen yeah we've done this is the 12th album archaeology so we've done like 12 percent of the shows have been album archaeology wow. which i think is a good number and in general i think we've always had a pretty good reaction to uh an album archaeology i think we've yeah yeah, yeah. that that connect with people one way or another so uh yeah mm. so let's uh let's get into oh and you can always email anything you like at cigar jukebox at gmail.com Absolutely. Please do. Send yeah. it over. Send, Send it, it over. over. Send it over. We love your comments. Um, Now, just some quick cigar music news. Well, you got some music news. I got some cigar jukebox news. So, yep. um, yeah, shout out to all the people who help us get out to hundreds. Thanks for that. 
Yeah. Uh, so um, the the reviews on the site, I used to have like certain days. It's sort of been whenever I have time. So keep checking. I just did a review on a Kesha song, Coop. Yeah. Which is really good. Um, and you have some Taylor Swift news. You, I, I, I watched this uh, link you had. <laughs> yeah. Notes. So this is this was. I think I put the Philly link on this because I still follow the Philly news. But it actually is something that's been going around this week. Mm. And a, apparently, I guess the TikTok video is down. But someone put a TikTok video about wearing adult diapers to a Taylor <laughs> Swift that. concert, right? Because the idea is they don't want to get up and miss any part of the Taylor Swift show. No. So they would wear adult diapers to this. And, and I'm going to be honest, Dave, I wouldn't even do that for Shaggy. No. <laughs> I'd hold my bladder in, I think, before it happened. Well, I, so I, I saw this thing, and I, and I first thought, like, well, because I go to a lot of concerts. Yeah. And regardless of where I'm sitting, like, I don't really, in movies, too, I'm not a big, like, need to get up and go to the bathroom kind of guy. Like, I can right. hold out. Uh, and, like, but then I thought of it, like, when we went to Harry Styles concert, like, we were in, you know, seating or whatever. Right. But if you go to those, if you go to those general admissions, Coop, and you're right by the front. Like I, even if you had to go, I don't know how you get out of there. Oh, I know, I know. Like they're so packed. Right. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm sure people have. I don't know. Uh, I gotta admit, I never thought of the idea until I saw it. <laughs> well, I saw the what was it? Um, I saw the prices, of the tickets. Some were saying on like the secondary market. Yeah. And it's like thousands of dollars. Sure. Which is crazy. Yeah. It's like uh, the secondary market is crazy. I think that it sounds like the problem was you had people go in and buy multiple tickets all quick and sell them all out. And so now you're on the secondary market and you're paying like $2,000 for a ticket. And you're like, oh, what if I feel the bathroom, yeah. I guess? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. You wouldn't do it for Shaggy, though. Come on, Cooper. What if he plays, you know? No, I'm not doing what it. What if what if what if when you're at the bathroom, it's like I want to bring out Sting, and we do our you know songs together. Well, that's where it, this is where, and I've gone to enough concerts. Bladder bladder management is something that you have to practice. <laughs> do not load your bladder up before. Do not drink coffee. <laughs> you know, do not do something. Cold, you, know, you have to do bladder management. Is what I'm telling. <laughs> bladder management. Oh, oh so, this is this is a question without notice. Uh huh. But I also read that like uh, Bruce Springsteen had a big fall on like yeah a um, concert or something. It was a big fall. Um, he was okay. He still performed, but yeah, he took some tumble. Yeah, he I heard that. He, he took like a Joe Biden type tumble. Um, yeah, I saw that too. Yeah, which is yeah again. Uh, look, it's Springsteen's in his seventies. I mean, uh, mm. Joe's in his eighties. You gotta fall. I mean, it's you know, look, it's uh. Um, but, but it was, he kind of joked and like said, up, oh, good night, everybody. <laughs> like, oh, and, then, and he got up and did, but yeah, that happened over in, uh, I guess, Europe that happened this week. Man. Cause he runs around like a crazy person. He he does. And you know, there's a lot of steps on those stages a lot of times. Cause there's platforms yeah, and yeah. different things. There's wires and stuff too. You could trip on. So, um, I don't remember any time Springsteen has fallen before. Um, so I can't say if it's happened. Maybe it did happen before, but I think a little more is being made of it because of his age, unfortunately. Yeah, I just saw it on uh, 
I don't know, some music set I was looking at or something. Yeah, yeah. So uh glad he's okay. He's just having mm. the tours going on. Uh I think it was it was it was a trip more than anything. I don't even like he passed out or anything if he saw it. No, 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 no. Tripped. Yeah, so glad he's okay with that, yeah. Um, um yeah. Oh, go ahead, Coop. Yeah, but yeah, you know, you're in your seventies now, it's not the same. So No. Yeah. Any uh any cigar news that you'd yeah, like to um a few things came in late, so I'll just highlight these. Um, a really interesting story. It was a big story actually on Coop this week. Uh, happened yesterday. Uh, Chaz Palminteri, the actor. Um, you know he's actually won. Oh, uh, yep. Made for an Academy Award. He is working with Epic Cigars, the brand owned by Dean Parsons. Uh, and they have a cigar called the Bronx Tale coming out. A Bronx Tale. All right. Out. Okay. Um, that's going to actually debut at a retail store in the Bronx. Um, so they actually, All right. there's, a, uh, there's a small store in the Bronx. It's called La Casa Grande, right? And they have a great reputation. They hand-rolled cigars in New York. Um, right. They used to supply a lot of the other stores with their house cigars. They're incredible cigars is what I'll just tell you. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, they're right. like, these are like really good. Um, they're not making the cigar there because it's a very small factory, but they're making it down in, uh, at actually the Kristoff factory that they uh that's what Dean uses for a lot of his stuff. Um so I'm pretty excited about that. Uh Chaz Palmateri is gonna be a PCA this year too. So um and he's gonna be launching the cigar. So uh All check right, it okay. out for sure. It's a six by fifty four box press Toro. Ecuadorian Habano wrapper, Dominican binder and Dominican Nicaraguan fillers. So it's that it's kind of in that Dean Parsons mold of cigars too. So uh, I would look forward. I mean, I'm looking for. I hope I get a chance to meet Chaz. Uh, I think he's a great actor and just great talent. Right. Yep. Um, a couple of other things I'll just mention quickly before we kind of uh, uh, into Aganorsa Leafs got a new anniversario coming out. It's a Connecticut blend. Mm-hmm. So uh, the anniversario Corojo is they have a Corojo and a Maduro. I love that Corojo. Uh, I think Ag- oh, okay. I think Agonars at least done some good Connecticut, so I'm looking forward to that one. That's gonna happen at PCA. Um, and then speaking of Connecticut, um, maybe a little bit of a year of Connecticut area, you know. Uh, Ashton mm. oh, yeah. has a new La Roma to Cuba, uh, Connecticut coming out. So all right, that's a that's a pretty exciting one um, to check out because uh, I've uh, I'm a big fan of the La Roma to Cuba line, so. Uh, Ashton doesn't come out with a lot of new cigars, but when they do, they're always of interest to me. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing is uh, the, the folks that's uh, selected tobacco, they make Atabay and Byron. Uh, they have a, a new Alfonso cigar coming out called the Grand Selection. Uh, right. It's a little bit of a darker version of the uh, Alfonso. They actually showed that at the PCA last year, but they weren't taking orders on it. So this year they are launching that. So uh, I have to get those Alfonsos in your hands at some point. Mm. Um, I think they're uh, they're very good. They're very good cigars. I have to right, get more. Okay. They're, they're not cheap, and I but but they but in my opinion they they uh the last year's Alfonso has actually been reviewed on Coop, and it's one of the top cigars I've reviewed this year. So I'm excited about that one. Right. Yep. I'll have to check out this Bronx shop. Get some cigars, Coop. Yeah. Um. You know, I haven't gotten up there in a while. But I used to be a member of a uh, when I was working in New York. I used to be a member of a club uh, called Florio's, um, and they were they were an Italian restaurant, and you used to be able to smoke in it. And what happened is the city shut them down, but they actually oh. were able to open a lounge upstairs, a private lounge, and I was a member of it for a few years. 
and Florio's would buy their barber poles from uh, this, uh, ah. this store in the Bronx, uh, which is so, and they weren't cheap because they were actually, but they sold at the time for fifteen dollars, right? And right. I would pay fifteen dollars back then for it. It was they were incredible cigars, um, really good stuff. So true boutique stuff. Uh, but I'm excited about this this Chaz Palmateri cigar. And and I don't Dean's a good guy, by the way. Dean is a one of the good guys who makes good cigars. Uh, I know Jose Blanco thinks very highly of him because he's worked with Dean mm. on some of his initial blends, Epic. So I'm a I I am a big fan of Dean's. He's tough to get on a show. We're trying to get him back. We've had him on once on primetime, and he's got a great story. So, yeah, good guy. Really good guy. So let's get into what we're smoking here, Coop. Yeah. All right. Um, So let me tell you what I was going to smoke. Uh-oh. Here we go. So there's a cigar out that was inspired by the song Eleanor Rigby. It's called Eleanor really? Rose. It's called Did Eleanor not Rose. Know that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. It's made by Sereno. I'm out of them. <laughs> I thought I had Ooh. them. I'm out. Okay. It's a very Dave Garofalo actually loves that cigar, by the way. I've heard him talk highly at it. I actually got it because I heard him talk about it. Um really good, but I didn't have any left. So I was like, that sucks, right? Yeah, uh, I'm gone. So next thing I was, well, it's a hundred. Do I go to my do I go to my um staple? The uh San Daniels um Hundred Años Maduro, yeah, my all-time favorite. I thought about it. I am a little low on my supply. I'm like, well, I could go to that, but I actually went with another cigar that I have been. You, you know, I've been talking this cigar up a lot. There's another top cigar I've had this year. The uh, my yes. father labels you, uh, Hundred Años. Yes, I gave you guys this. I bought you guys those cigars in Minneapolis. I said, very good. Oh, I've been high on it. Yeah. It's a great cigar. Uh, it's worthy of of being on a show like this tonight. Uh, will it is it is in? I will say this: it is in the running for one of my top cigars this year. It is I have, really? I have bought a lot of these. Yeah, they're but very it's, good. It was a great cigar. Yeah, they really and they're aging really good. So they got like you know they got five more months of age on them. Uh, six months now, probably actually well, six months, and they're just smoke. It's the I think it's a masterpiece they've done at Pepin this right. year. So I'm gonna smoke this. I'm very excited. To light this up nice well all, all of my cigars are inspired by the uh, tax man because they all get they all get stopped at the border <laughs> for customs <laughs> but i have got the this just came in the other day because i was I gonna s- do the dogma but i changed it because this came in it's the pork tenderloin tuxla if you can see that yep because for a hundredth show, you gotta have a tux coop. There so you go. I got my got my tux. Yeah, and you know, there's no magic with pairing a cigar. I mean, you really could get creative pairing cigar music. That's right. Um, and that's a that look. The, the pork tenderloin is probably the ultimate shop exclusive. Maybe Anarchy is the other one I'd put, but I mean, yeah, it's one of them. Oh, I mean, good. when we put that story up at PCA last year, we broke the story about this Tuxla coming out. It went off the charts. Number, like people going crazy on it, right? Um, and Pete basically said, "Hey, if you're at the show, order it. I'm going to make them the order." So, like, right. basically, that's what he did. He made it, uh, a, a, and it's not a hard cigar get because a lot of people went, I think, heavy and bought a lot of those, right? Yeah. So, um. But I will say, give a shout out to Bear. Uh, ben Ooh. Lee was his guest on El Oso for more takes on Sunday, and they did a on 
air smoke of the um, Tuxla, uh, Avian Tuxla, which is one of the. Oh, that's a good. I, I, yeah. Yep. I think I had that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the, I think actually, like, there's always a debate which is everyone's favorite right now. Uh, I think most people have gravitated to the Avian as their favorite of those. Yeah. So, um, I think it's a totally worthy special cigar for a, sp- a very special show tonight. So, we got the pigtail, we got the closed yeah, foot. Yeah. It's actually the Lomo de Cerdo, it's called, which is the yeah, hey, call it whatever you like. But it's yeah, I got really, uh, I thought Tux was a, was a good fit. Yeah, Tux. I mean, we put on, you know, we I thought about wearing a suit and tie, but uh, oh. a little hot, you know. Uh, I did tell Hector I might wear a tie to the Espinosa boots this year. Oh, oh I don't know if I'm going to do it because it's summer. hot out there, right? But uh, oh, yeah. but but if I don't do it this year, I'm going to do it next year. At the because he's like, I, we, we, Hector and I got in a whole debate on. Uh, I said, you know, I miss people wearing suits and ties and stuff. You know, it's he's like, like, well, then wear it, buddy. Yeah, you're not gonna get Hector in a, in a. If we get Hector in a tux, we we should do it for charity or something like. Oh. I'll see if Hector wants to do something for charity, maybe, and get him in a tux. We'll yeah, pay for the tux, rental, man. is what I'll say. I'll pay for the rental out of it. Um. Mm-hmm. All right. So good, this cigar. Oh, oh yeah, it's a great cigar. Yeah. I, I'm gonna jump into some history. And then, There's uh, a lot of history. Yeah, so I'm gonna let you kind of go with it, and then I'll supplement some stuff along the way, and then I'll give you my additional thoughts at the end. But Dave, yeah, did a great I got job. Some, at this. I got some like nuts and bolts. Really, yeah, it's good stuff, though. Um, right. So revolver. So it's important to kind of see where this lands in their history, because a lot of uh, people, I think we are included, think this is probably this is you know not if not the most because records come out since then, one of the most influential rock albums ever. Is this one? And you got to sort of, I think I have it in my notes, so I won't kill my notes with it. Oh, yeah, I have it later. Uh, but it's interesting to see the context around when this comes out. So it was recorded between April and June in 66, which is just fresh off a of rubber sole in 65, um, which was, uh, you know, widely re- popular and people liked rubber sole. So this is right off a of rubber sole. This is under Capitol Records was recorded at the EMI Studios in Abbey Road. They originally wanted to do it in Stax Studios in Memphis. Uh, but the people at Stax heard the Beatles were one record. They were afraid too many people would come to the studio. So they're like, uh, no. So they, they didn't want to deal with that zoo. So they said, okay, well, you, you can't record here. So they went to EMI uh, at Abbey Road, which is a fairly modern studio. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about... Um, the production stuff on here, but uh, I was put out on a capital produced by George Martin that did all the production. However, yep. Coop, however, what's going to be very important in this record is Jeff Emmerich, who's Absolutely. the engineer. Absolutely. So often we talk about producers. Sometimes we talk about engineers if they're quite important. Uh, he was only 19. We did it, but this is going to be vitally important, not only to this album, Album, but to music history, yep. Jeff Emmerich. Absolutely. He's very important. Yep. Um, so uh, Ringo has talked in the interviews recently, or not recently, but in the past, about the title. And he's like, well, it wasn't about guns. 
he said it was about the record because the record revolves around a turntable, so it's the revolver. Is what he said. So it wasn't an LSD trip. Well, it probably was. It probably. Was. I always wondered if it was the LSD trip, and he just gave a politically correct answer on that. <laughs> I assume so. He's yeah. not going to be like, "Well, we were all like yeah. tripping out of our minds." Yeah, yeah. And uh, so he said, so "That's what yeah. he says." Uh, now this kind of marks the very beginning of the end show. This is sort of the beginning of where the Beatles start falling apart. Yeah. So at this time, a lot of the Beatles were sort of getting to their own interests. Like you had Lennon doing in individual stuff. Harrison was doing his stuff. McCartney was sort of getting more into social activism stuff. So the band was spending less time together and more time pursuing sort of like solo interests. Yeah. Uh, which sort of, you know, uh, exponentially increases until the band yeah. basically falls apart in 1970. Um, so this is also going to be very important. This is where Lennon said that they were more, that they were more popular than Jesus, yep. which in retrospect wasn't a great thing to say, um, but it was good for us to get this album. It was. So he yeah, said yeah. that. <laughs> He said that, and what happened was all these people started coming up and protesting their shows. They were getting threats. So the, they were getting really stressed out on tour for their safety. Yep. So I guess the key thing here that we will keep coming back to is they made this record knowing that they were going to stop touring. Big point. Big point on this, yes. Yeah, because they stopped touring in August of 66. So when they made the record... They knew they weren't going to tour, so they're like, we could care less if we could play these songs live. And they didn't. I don't think they played a lot of these live for many years. No, they're like, it doesn't matter. Yeah, until so, they were individuals. Yeah, this is a big yeah. point. Yeah. So they Who didn't care. So, yeah. so, so it meant when they did production, yep. they did all this stuff that they've never really done before. So they had multiple tracking. They had tape loops, which we'll get into that overdubbing, which we will get into, compression, distortions. They were putting mics like right up to the drum kits and like blowing them out. They were like, it didn't matter because they're like, we're never going to have to play these. And so you have like these string and horn arrangements and everything. So it, 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 in the studio, it really freed them up to do whatever they wanted because it didn't really, like, who cares? Um, and, I guess you got to think of when this record's coming out. Yep. So, and Coop and I have talked about this before, but it's this explosion of creativity in rock music anyways, because you have Pet Sounds, which comes out like months before this record comes out. So Pet Sounds and this record were sort of being conceived of at the same time. So this record is, is made, about ready to get pressed. Pet Sounds comes out. This record comes out. We know the couple of the Beatles, maybe Lennon McCartney or McCartney and Harrison or something, they hear of uh, early version of Pet Sounds, like a like a pre-release, because they, they go over there, yeah. one of the one of the guys goes over there and sees them. Uh, they hear that and they go, oh my God, we we just made Revolver, but this makes Revolver look, you know, yeah, I mean, terrible. McCartney was already thinking ahead to Sgt. Pepper at this yeah. point when this happened. Yeah. So he's like, oh, God, our next album has to be way better now. Yep. And so then they put out Sergeant Pepper. So you can see sort of this really explosion and probably a big explosion in the production, like what you can do in studio, really, with like the tracking and all that sort of stuff. 
Um, they also this this album is credited as being the band's like part of their psychedelic era, and they have specifically said that they wanted the production to mimic a trip on LSD. And that's going to come up a lot. A lot. is yeah, We have a lot of stories with that tonight, too. We're going to talk about with that. So they wanted the instruments. Like, I think Lennon in, a, in an interview was like, I told uh, the producer and, and, and Jeff Emmerich, I, want the, I don't want the instruments to sound like the instruments. So I want a guitar to sound like something else. I don't want it to yep. sound like a guitar. Yep. Stuff like that. And so they were, they were really sort of trying to capture musically what it's like to be on a trip. Um, and I think this is one of my favorite. I think it's my favorite Beatles record. It's sort of a line in the sand record too. It's like it kind of uh, really delineates sort of the early Beatles stuff with like it's sort of like pre-revolver and post-revolver. Yeah. So you kind of have fans that sort of lean more towards pre or lean more towards post because of like the production and the yeah. the psychedelic nature yeah. of it. And yeah. So yeah, but uh, a very sort of pivotal record for the for the band. Uh, yep. the revolver. I agree. I agree. Um, and Coop's got Coop's got. So that's sort of the nuts and bolts yep. of the uh, of the of the yeah. the history of the record. A very good one. Um, um, oh, one last thing, Coop. Mm-hmm. So we talked about Phil Collins. We did our archaeology of uh, No Jacket Required. And what Phil liked to do in studio is he basically had all the songs worked out, and the studio was just to record it. Like he would go in and. His studio time was pretty much like bang, bang, bang. I know what yep. I'm doing, whatever. Like a lot of what Jeff Emmerich done is they would just go in the studio and like fuck around forever. Yeah, they like did. they had not like they had rough ideas and they would just do like I think Taxman they were doing like 22 takes of it and stuff. It was like they just hung out in the studio. So the studio was a very sort of experimental space. It's kind of the like exact opposite of of what we talked about with Phil Collins. Yeah, no, it's very true. And if you watch that Beatles Disney Plus special, um, you see a lot of that. Even that was with a lot of B sessions, obviously. But um, but yeah, you see a lot of that. Now go ahead, Coop. Sorry about that. Uh, no, no, all good. Thunder. So, so let me first talk about the psychedelic rock thing because this is considered a pioneering album in the, in the whole psychedelic rock thing, right? And it's mm-hmm. it's really like psychedelic rock. It, a lot of people look back. You talk about a Beatlesque sound. I think that mm-hmm. Beatlesque sound is a combination of two things. Uh, it's fun, it's, it more, it more, well, a big component of the Beatlesque sound is the psychedelic rock thing. And I think there's two components to it. First, I think, is the, the Indian music influence that Harrison brought in with the sitar yep. and all that. Mm-hmm. The second mm-hmm. thing, I think, is this thing I call Baroque pop, which is this mm-hmm. combining classical musical styles with, with rock music. And mm-hmm. they did this really, really well. And we're going to be talking about a couple of the tracks with this. And I think that, like, if you look at and you hear people say this album's Beatlesque, they don't talk about um, She Loves You, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah they're yeah, talking about yeah. this stuff is what they're talking yeah, about. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, you talked about um, them coming in with their own ideas. And mm-hmm. this was, a, this, this, by the way, this is where I think George Martin did a great job with this, right? Because as we go through this, right, uh, they all were coming in with their own ideas. And they had this three months. They took a three months break prior to this, right? And they were all kind of mm. just. I don't think they just stopped. They they cut themselves off from music. They were all doing some stuff. So when they came yeah. to the studio for this, they all came in with these disparate ideas. And and they, at times there was some friction with this. It wasn't. Mm. Uh, I would say it was a a brutally bitter recording session, but there was definitely some friction at times. 
the the other thing that I found interesting, Dave, with this is, you know, if you look at Beatles songwriting, it's usually credited Lennon McCartney, one, as one, Harrison two, and then if Ringo gets anything, right, right. But it's usually Harrison yeah. usually did his own stuff and it contributed yes. to the album. And then Lennon McCartney. But when you when you get behind this, when you start looking and, and you're gonna see a lot of Beatles experts dissect this album to date, right? And there's a lot of theories on the story behind. But there's been interviews with Lennon and McCartney over the years, and basically a lot of those Lennon McCartney things were either one or the other. Heavily influenced by McCartney, yeah. but they were credited as Lennon McCartney. But so they were kind of yes, on different yeah. planes with this as well. And I think that's an important point mm. to make with this. And this is why I think you know, and again, Jeff Emmerich's role in this is fantastic. Oh, but but this is why I give George Martin a lot of credit as a producer to kind of bring yeah. still bring this together here with this. Uh these stories. Um, go ahead, yeah. These stories. Mm. I'm sorry, Dave, were you gonna say something? Oh no, go ahead. So these stories, there's stories behind a lot of these songs. Some of them have been disclosed, mm. some of them haven't, and this led to a lot of Beatles experts with theories behind some of these songs. And we'll get to a couple like there's one song we're gonna get to where you know, they're talking about someone and who is it? And there's a lot of theories with that. Mm. You, you mentioned the creative wars with the Beach Boys and the Stones, Dave. That was a big thing. Um, and there's actually a couple of songs that we'll talk about with that. But, uh, you know, just to set the pace, the Stones had released Aftermath earlier in the year. Mm. Um, and they were then they go, the Stones come back a year later with uh, their Satanic Majesty's Request, which is psychedelic. They go mm. with that. And then the Beach Boys I mean, release Pet Town. So, yeah. I mean, I, I'm a Stones guy. I know that's you're not supposed to be a Stones and a Beatles guy. Yeah. You're supposed to be one or the other. But I'm a Stones guy. But I got to tell you what, Coop. This record blows anything the Stones did, like, out of the water. Like, no, but, I mean. Yeah. Woo. But there's one song we're going to talk about that McCartney was in the studio on Aftermath with. Because these guys all uh, hung out together. The Beach Boys yeah. and uh, Stones. They were, they were friends. But definitely, they were influenced, yeah. and there's one song in this album that definitely uh, was is a connection to Aftermath. Uh, we'll mm. talk about that, right? I, it wasn't stolen or anything, but it's they borrowed a concept from that album, uh, which was mm. kind of interesting. And I don't think McCartney ever denied it either. Um, another thing is, I don't consider this a radio friendly album. No, but the songs were all three well, minutes and under. They were all three minutes That's... and under. That's surprising to me because I haven't listened to it for a while before I put it. I listen to the yep. tracks here and there, but I haven't listened to the whole album. This is like really short, like punchy songs on this record. Yeah, like it's the, not. The, yeah. I think three hundred two is the max on it. Mm, that's a good point. There's nothing over that. There's nothing that goes to three minutes and ten seconds. Even this is a short. No. There's, there's fourteen short songs on this album. A lot of two minute songs, yeah. Yeah, a lot of two minute songs, and and here's the thing that's really cool. I usually like the longer song. I feel like I'm satisfied with those short songs. I don't feel mm. like I got like uh, short chains by any means, you know. Mm. No, 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 no. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I have a couple points on album construction. Mm. Um, I'll say this: I don't think this was the best constructed album in terms of ordering the songs. I don't think it was mm. bad, but there's some things I'm like. I don't know if there was a lot put into that with this. Um, yeah. Some parts, I think side B was actually better constructed than side A is what I'll say. I mean, but, yeah, I think I, I, cause I, I hearing that it's a very good point. I think unlike some other albums, I don't know if there's like a, a through line with this record coop as more as it was just a series of like production experiments, you know, 
Yeah. Like, I don't know if there's like a concept to kind of like push the no. instruction. Yeah. I think Sgt. Pepper was a different story. There was because mm. that was a concept album. Mm. So I think there was a lot more attention played to construction with Sgt. Pepper. And some of the rec some of the tracks on here are just so like different from each other. It's like, how are these on the same record? So yeah, it was a lot of experimentation. It was yeah. like tracks were made in a vacuum almost, you know. Yeah. Yep. And then the last thing is it was actually three tracks that were not in the original North American edition. Yeah, uh, that's crazy. So I'm only sleeping and your bird can sing and Dr. Robert, which is surprising, right? But I think they made it on quickly after that. Was yeah. it, I think it was released and then they, they added them in. They were able to get it in there. So I uh, think before this record, it's not on the record, but I think a single they reached before this record is they did uh, Paperback Writer and they made, Rain, yeah, like yeah. right before this. I think they didn't yeah. make it on the record. Yeah. I think they did it right before. Yep. Um, I was going to say, too, as you were saying, I think the fifth Beatle on this record is Ravi Shankar. Yes. Because he inspired a ton of this record. Yep. He and did. His work with, yeah. And, and the Harrison and all those guys, that Ravi's, the sitar and stuff, Ravi Shankar is like the invisible fifth Beatle on this record, I think. Yep. Yeah, yeah I agree. Big influence on this, too. And then Yoko was sort yeah. of an influence later, but not yeah, as a performer. Yeah, more of an influence later, yeah, yeah but she's yeah. sort of in the context here. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, I can't wait, Coop. Here we go. Here we we're, go, Coop. We're getting, we're getting into it now. We're Let's, get into it. Off. Let's do Tax Man. Yeah. Now, I was thinking about this after I read Coop's notes. I've been thinking about the song a lot. I love the song. Um, So, Harrison wrote it uh, and this is the first time and only time yes. a record starts with a Harrison written track, which is very interesting. Yeah. Yep. Um, so he wrote this. He got a start. Uh, They're writing it mainly about the taxes in England and the progress in the government there. Yeah. Um, to be honest, like the Beatles are seeing these revolutionaries. They're basically writing a song complaining about how much they were being taxed. Right. I mean, pretty much. Yep. Yeah. So. They're like, why are you taxing me so bad? I'm going to make a record out of it. Yeah. Um, so because they, they name check different, you know, politicians and stuff in the song. Yep. Um, the, the song itself is kind of adopted this mod style, but it's also sort of been talked about as like proto punk mm -hmm. in a way, um, mainly because of McCartney's guitar solo, which is just fire. It is yep. so good. Yeah. So ha Harrison tried to do it. Couldn't do it. He's like, I keep doing it. He's like, it's not working. Something ain't working. And McCartney's like, get out of there. Let me do it. And it is fire. I mean, I love both the rhythm and the lead guitars on this track. This is where we start talking about being experimental. Here's Colin. Oh, Hector, get your tux on. <laughs> Uh, this is where we talk about being experimental is that they were doing a lot of like double tracking with the vocal and then harmonies behind it. There's all this like tracking stuff on this record or on this song. Yep. I love it. I love the harmonies on this record, but yep. um, I know you're going to talk about it as a lead track. I don't mind it as a lead track. I think it sets the tone of like, this isn't going to be, you know, your typical Beatles record. So I think it might be a good tone setter, but I can see what you're saying is like maybe not the best opening track. 
Yeah. But yeah, I love this track. Yeah. And in fairness, when I do my notes, I kind of cut and paste a lot of them in there. So I don't look at Dave's yeah. till after I put them in there. And I made a comment. I didn't think this was a good lead track, but I didn't think of the angle you just said about this being an experimental type of album. And it makes a lot of sense. But I'm, at the same time, I'm not sure this album had a standout, like, tr- like great track I would have yeah. played as a lead one either. So I mean, your, your explanation is the best I can he- think of at this point. I, the only other the track, as I'm looking through my notes, the only track that maybe you could put a, a lead is for no one, maybe? Maybe. Maybe. I mean, but, you, but you have a comment about that, too. I don't know. Yeah. I don't yeah. know what else you put as lead. The Yellow Submarine? <laughs> no. Nah, maybe Eleanor Rigby. Maybe I would have yes. put Eleanor Rigby. Okay. I can see but, that. But, yeah. But uh, maybe got to get you into my life, but no. Not for the first mm, side. Maybe for the second yeah, side. Yeah, not the first side. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I love though the outtake that begins this song. Mm, yeah. An, okay. It, the count in. Is the, that count the count in, in is great. Yeah. yeah. It is just great, and and that may be why they put it as the first one. It's kind of like it comes it comes in there. But right. again, I, so I, the I guess, ca- yeah. So the count in, right? So the count in was then. There's two count ins, mm-hmm. right? And there's actually there's the count ins, and then there's a count in in the background of one of them. Yes. And that goes back to Please Please Me, where they started that record with the count. That's right. Yes. Good point. So that's why. So I think a lot of the count in was added after. Like, but I can see count-in. that again, looking at, you know, what George Martin and Jeff Emmerich doing in this is, is um, you know, this is where I think some of their magic really came into play with this. But great, great point on the count in. I forgot about the count in. Yeah. Great point. Yeah. Now, according to f- stories. Hmm. The Beatles were having financial problems. Well, yeah, yeah. At this point, like, and it's hard to told, imagine. To be the, the accountant told them, "You better watch your money. You guys are gonna be bankrupt." They, they watch it. So there's some theory that this is why George. This may be the inspiration why George Harris oh, yeah. wrote this, right? For all the and then just kind of it becomes a political statement is what he makes here. I just love how like, like I said, they see these revolutionaries, but the song is inspired by like. The government's taking all my money, yep. and I want to be rich. <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But I think they were blaming that. Like, hey, we had to pay all these yeah. taxes, you know. It's oh like, yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And this was a big. This was, you know, this, you know, the whole English socialism thing was really becoming big at this point. This was a, so this song again had a big impact back then. Uh, so Dave, if you were to actually take the take the vocals out of this song. And you just listen to the instrumentation, you really will hear mm, that psychedelic yeah. and mod style rock thing. And it oh, just, yeah, it, yeah. It re- then you could kind of even see how this is a proto punk song. When you take the lyrics out of it, and you're just focusing on the melody here and the music, absolutely, I, I totally agree with that. In there, um, this is a much deeper song than maybe people will give. Musically, this is a much deeper song than people give it credit. Yes. For. Uh, and this is why it's it's lyrically a great song and musically a great song. I don't know if McCartney's performed Tax Man at all or Harrison. I should say I don't know. Oh, if they, Harrison I might know. have. I I have to. I didn't look that up. Um, oh, I'd love McCartney too. Yeah, I I I want to say I've heard McCartney do this too. No, yeah. I. Uh, it's interesting as we just are going to take the whole time yeah. talking about the first song yeah. for God's yeah. sakes, but. Yeah. <laughs> I did the exact opposite of you. I went through and listened to outtakes where it was only the vocals. 
Now I got to do and, that. I, I want to hear that. Yeah. Oh, the harmonies are so good. There are even harmonies they took out of it that they had in other takes. But they're so good. Yeah. The harmonies on this record are so good. Very good. Anyway. And, and I think this was great for George Harrison's career to have a lead single off an album. Too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm surprised they didn't do it again. But I mean, you wouldn't have had a ton of more time. They only, I mean, they only had another four years yeah, or whatever. Yeah. I mean, when George Harrison started experimenting with the Indian music, I think that's when people really started to look at him, uh, you know, as a really serious musician going down the road. I I, I heard, um, I think it was one of our, when we were, when the Rivals show was still on, Hooping Our Favorite show, and I was listening to them talking about the Beatles. And they said, a lot of people think George Harrison is the third best songwriter of all time. But the problem yeah. was he was in a band with number one and number, number two. Number two, yeah, yeah. And poor Ringo, poor Ringo, they had throwing bones. Yeah, I am a big Ringo fan. I've seen his All Star tour several times. His All Star band, he's great well, with these other musicians. He really is. Imagine uh, trying to get a word in Edge Rise when your band's made up of Harrison, McCartney, and Lennon. I think Ringo's like, I just want to play drums. Oh, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think Ringo, I just want to play drums. Yeah. But no, ah. Oh. So if you like, well, it doesn't get better than tax, man. We followed up with number two, which is Eleanor Rigby. Yeah. Which uh, Coop Coop's gonna get us kicked off on this, and I'm very interested in the, the Baroque pop stuff, which you got here. I'm very interested in that. Yeah. So this is a great example of that Baroque proc sound. It's it, it's that mm. classical music, uh, with the pop sounds. You got those string instruments in there, and this was groundbreaking. This is really groundbreaking. What, what happened here? Uh, because Eleanor Rigby, it almost feels like when you hear this song, there's like the elements of a symphony orchestra. Not all I the. Love this song. I, I love this song too. Um, it is it's the sound, uh, the harmonies, uh, you know, the, the the ah, look at all the lonely people. It's mm -hmm. just fantastic. Now, this is something that I really associate with Paul McCartney more. Okay. The idea of the characters. Okay, yes. putting characters in a song, and this is McCartney's done this probably more. Some Lennon's going to do one later on, but you have two characters in this song. You have Eleanor Rigby, who's like this spinster. Okay, yeah, they're, they're singing about who eventually dies, and you have Father McKenzie. Father McKenzie, yeah, right. The pre the priest who eventually presides over, the, and it's a, it's basically a story about uh, an aging woman, and eventually she's lonely, and the Father McKenzie uh, presides over. I. I love when the Beatles go to these characters and when Paul McCartney has gone to these characters over the years. Mm. And you could start you could go down the go down the, the list of this. You know, even even Jude is a character I look at later on. Yeah. Um, who is Julian Lennon? I mean, is this but you go into, you know, um you, you just come up with you'll just come up with a ton of these throughout their career. But this one and, and if you notice the same amount of syllables, Eleanor mm. Rigby. Father McKenzie. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. really to kind of and just coming up with these names and 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 it just makes a great story here. Um, not a long song, but this is I, mm. I this is my favorite track on the album, and there's a lot of really okay. Tracks. I love this song. Um, I, and uh, you know, it's it's this one. I I think McCartney has sung over the years uh, later on. Yeah. I think he has sung. Oh, I'd assume so. Yeah, but it it's it, it, to me it's it is a short song, but you get. Mm. You get so I, I just come out of it so satisfied with this song. I um and I had this other another note other than another song. But what I really love about the Beatles, right, 
is, and I'm trying to adjust my camera so I get some light in here. I don't know what's going on. Yep. Um, but what I like, they, they do a really good job. Jody Mitchell was like this as well. They do a great job of telling stories about like everyday people. Like their their songs about sort of the everyday. You know, we got another song on here too, but like their songs about kind of like, you know, the everyday like are so good. Like the way they can describe just like these everyday people in their everyday settings are so good. Yeah. They're so good. Um the bold move. To only have strings on the on the track, you know, and that's why I said that's why I corrected myself. Was it a symphony? But it was el- those strings with such classic yeah, elements yeah, is what symphonic. they did. Yeah. Yep, yeah. yep. Bold move. None of the Beatles played instruments on this track. None of them. That's amazing. Ringo was just told to take <laughs> take a seat. Yeah, just take a take a break. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Did he do vo- did he do the vocals with in Har- him and Harrison? Do- I'm sure he would have. Uh, but did he do some of the harmonies? I'm wondering. I did, that I didn't check. Well, I mean, I have to look at the different takes too, because yeah. like they probably did seventy-five takes of this as well, which yep. probably was on some of them. Yep. Um, I don't know, but I do know that this track hints at what's going to be bigger than Sgt. Pepper. It's just the enormous list of guest musicians they have on this record. And Between we talked the about this and the horns and the yeah. yeah. This is what Brian Wilson did on Pet Sounds as well. Would have been an expensive record to make. I, mean, I don't know how much it costs, but if you bring, I mean, the list of artists they bring in is huge. And then you saw what he, what Wilson did on Pet Sounds was even more. So I mean, yeah. this is enormous. Like you yeah. wouldn't. Again, we talked about you. This record probably would not be made today. No, I mean Pet Sounds wouldn't be either because that that cost no. a bomb. I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the thing is, is like at that time, who's going to tell the Beatles at, at Beach Boys no? Who's gonna be like, no, you can't make that? Yeah, like nobody. Yeah. Um, I just, I, I love. It's got this sort of loneliness and darkness to it, even though you know yeah. you don't associate with the song. I mean, you might, but it's, it's just got this great sort of. And it's got this almost like prog, like early prog coupe avant garde sort of art housey vibe. Yeah. I mean, you do a great job saying it's broke pop. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. But it's... I sort of see early sort of prog in here you know yeah and i kind of that prog i kind of associate with that baroque sound too yeah yeah that's great and then and that's and i think like what you said coop like it's those sorts of sounds that we associate more with being beatlesque than like you know yeah twist or whatever yeah when when tears for fears did uh the season love album yeah, Th- there was things like strings and all that that were incorporated into it and horns and stuff. And that was what, you know, uh, was kind of because that was called a Beatle. They did a Beatlesque album when they came out with that. They, they'd never done that sound before, but it was everyone pointed back to the Beatlesque sound with that. God, I love this record. So, um, what, it's my it's favorite a, Beatles record. Love it. Oh, it's, it's just fantastic. Um, so we're, we move from that, Eleanor Rigby, to I'm Only Sleeping. Which, for me, the Beatles talked extensively about why to capture a drug trip in music. <laughs> extensively. Um, they had that talk with, I mean, mainly with the with, with Emmerich, with the sound engineer. And then he would be like, you know, putting mics right up to... Because Apple Music were, well, I mean, you know, EMI, the, the studio, and Abbey Road had this rule that you couldn't have a mic closer than 18 inches from an instrument to like protect the mics 
Yep. And they really wanted to get this drum sound. I don't know if it's this song or another song, but so they put like a sweater in the bass drum in the of Ringo Ringo. <laughs> and they stuck the mic like two inches from the drum. And so Je- Emmerich kept getting in trouble with the studio because the Beatles loved the sounds he was getting, but he kept blowing out all all the mics. Right. Because he would be destroying them. So it's this sort of idea is they they want what the Beatles want is they want a new sound. They want to like stretch what a what a studio can do, and they want it to be, be like when they're on LSD, essentially. Yep. Um, and this track is like that. It's very, it's a very meandering track for me, and it also has that high compression with this like weird sort of reverse guitar sitari thing that just pops in every once in a while. Yep, a very sort of compressed, kind of like bizarre, sort of trippy effect. Um, now tomorrow never knows is going to dial this trippy up to eleven, like it's going to go over the top. But it's sort of a bit here. It's kind of a largely I put a largely wholesome track with an edge, so it's largely like what you'd expect, you know, from a typical Beatles track. But then it has this like really compressed guitar or whatever that like jumps in and out of it. Uh, and I and I said too that the Beatles have a gift for writing compelling tracks about everyday life, and and this is it for me in here too. I love their tracks about sort of the everyday. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm. Um. And I think, Dave, that this is exactly what was going on with this song. Yeah. So, you know, again, I talked about Lennon McCartney always credited together, but this was more, this was much more of a Lennon inspired song oh, yeah. from what I, everything I've said. So, um, supposedly the, the, there was a draft found of the lyrics of this song. Oh, God. And it's basically, and there was some letter uh, on the back of it, uh, there was something saying that he was enjoying about staying into, you know, being lazy and staying into bed, you know, like sleeping, watching TV, probably or probably not, probably under the influence of some drugs, right? So I, I, I imagine the, the lyrics of this song were written on a sheet of LSD, like they didn't even <laughs> use paper. Right, right. So but I think the inspiration was actually Lennon just wanting, you know, he was on this again that I think that three months break was very key with, with yeah. this album. And I think he was doing a lot of that, you know, Lennon, Lennon, in his later second half of his career became much more of a recluse. He was known as, yes. And yeah, I think yeah, you yeah. started to see some of this reclusiveness start to surface around this time with this. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also that acid style. Lennon you get oh, here, Jesus. Right? right. Yeah. <laughs> I love that note. Coop's note says classic acid style. John Lennon. It is. It, it's classic acid <laughs> style. John Lennon. Right. Um, yeah. But I think all of this, you read into drug euphoria in the lyrics, and you, got, oh, you can't yeah, help yeah, but not yeah. read into. No. Even though the yeah. okay, the inspiration was one thing, but the lyrics of this is is another thing, and uh, you know you definitely you, you kind of go more into that. Uh, there's definitely a psychedelic element with this. There's no oh, way, yeah. you know, not baroqueish, but uh, no, yes, it's that it's that really compressed guitar that just sort of jumps yeah. in whenever it wants. It's like whoa, what is yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, but th- there's. I got to point to some of the lyrics again here, right? Because, <laughs> yeah. he, because yes. again, this it reminds me so much of watching the wheels with Lennon. That was, yes. you know, he says everyone's everybody seems to think I'm lazy. I don't mind. They think I'm crazy. Which, when you go back and listen to watching the wheels, he talks about that as well. Mm. Um, you know, so uh, you know, he seems says keeping an eye on the world going by my window again. What I, I, 
Watching yeah. the Wheel is a very different song musically, but lyrically, I put a lot together with that song here. And I thought it was a great third track, by the way. I thought this is oh, yeah. where I would put it. I, I think they they this one they did nail down pretty well. It's a great track. Yeah. And it's the longest track on the album at three minutes and two seconds. I, I, That's it, crazy. What, it's not track four, by the way, Jay said. It's, I was wrong on that. It's, I, no, I mean, a lot of what's happening here in Revolver, and it's why it's, it's so influential. Yeah. Is it's gonna it's gonna get blown out even more on Sgt. Pepper's, and then the White Album is just like this explosion of you know musical creativity. But yeah, is you, you can sort of see like these three minute songs here there these these concepts are gonna get really blown out yeah. in, in their later their later stuff. Oh, it's great. Oh yeah, and if you notice with the first three tracks again, the first one's a Harrison one. The second one is probably more Paul McCartney-ish with Eleanor Rigby. Yeah. And now this one's more Lennish. So they're kind of rotating through this. Rotating around, yeah. I yeah, think Harrison like, has like a couple more tracks. The next one is a Harrison one, yeah. 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 So um, you go back to Harrison, yeah. Yeah, well, I'll let you take this off. Love to you. Love to you. Harrison. Um, yeah. This screams George Harrison when you listen to it. You never, <laughs> I if love you, George if, Yeah, if you didn't know... Uh, if you didn't know, uh, you'd know it right away because again, uh, it's he's got that sitar in here. Uh, he, had, you know, this was not the first album he had put the sitar. It was actually uh, on Rubber Soul with Norwegian Wood. Um, he had put. God, that I in love there. that song too. Yeah. Oh, it's an underrated. Song. Beatles are so good. Yeah. Sorry. But this last thirty seconds of the song, it, there's like a mm-hmm. tempo picked up with this song. I just love it. To me, it's like the best thirty seconds of of a song that you get in there. Um, and I actually put a note in. I probably mm. would have put this as the the last single on the first side because I like that up tempo. Um, I like that up tempo close with that. So um, I didn't really like where it was positioned here, but again, um, I didn't think this was a tough album to construct song wise. As I said, but I I probably would have had this at the end of the first side. That was just me. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Under really underrated. This is an underrated song in the Beatles portfolio, too. By oh, way. it's a great song. Yeah. I mean, uh, so yeah, like Coop said, uh, sitar and tabla really highlight the Indian influence. There's a lot of Indian influence on this record. Um, also, this sort of starts to highlight the overdubbing with some of the instruments. Now, yes, yeah, big point you make. Yeah, yeah, good job. We're that. gonna, yeah. they're gonna have a lot of overdubbing on this record, and this gets back to like we don't care, we don't have to play it live. Yep. Um, which is gonna be. Uh, a lot of when we talk about one of the up the songs coming up, yep. which is really inspirational to a lot of music, really. Um, yep. I, I unlike the sort of their 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 harmonies, which are great on this. This sort of has like a chanting quality to it, like the the vocal. Like it's not really this like highly harmonized yep. vocal that we we're used to on this record. Um. And I put, there's no way they could do this live. Like, this is the example of, like, like there's no way they're doing this song live. No. I don't know um, if it's ever been done live, by the way. I didn't look to uh, see, but yeah. I don't think you could. Uh, it's it's just a very engineered <laughs> song is what this is. And I was, I was reading about this song, as I read about, like, all these songs, really, while listening to them. And, and, and they're talking about how this is a love song. This is a love song about for Harrison to his wife and to his love of LSD. <laughs> and, and and Harrison and Lennon were, we'll be talking about this a little later they were the ones more heavily into the LSD mm. they were the ones who were really into it 
and that's gonna play a role. That's gonna play a role. Yeah, it's gonna play a role. There's a whole song where they trip actually with this. You can just tell him. You can just see him taking LSD with Ravi Shankar playing the tabla. Yeah, yeah. And Lennon's just hanging out in bed, you know, taking LSD and watching TV. God, I I know that's the song we already did that I'm only sleeping, but I just love, I love how they capture everyday life. I love it. It's so good. It's they do, so good. They, they do a good job. And you know, back to going back to Eleanor Rigby, that is a song about everyday life. You have it a is. lot of like people. Like everyday like people. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love it. It really is. And it deals with death and all that. It's it's yeah. It's a very sort of yeah. middle working class position. Absolutely. You know? But anyway, I just love how it's a love song about like his wife, oh, and LSD. I love yep. both of those yep. things. Yep, yep, absolutely. Oh, God, we are. It's funny. We're talking about these songs like at least three times longer than they actually have a playtime. Right. It's amazing because there's so <laughs> much you can build. It. That's what I think. These songs were so satisfying. Like, I'm usually not the short term so, short song guy, but I'm yeah. always satisfied with these songs. Like, they get everything done. I'm like, you'd be stretch it out for the sake of stretching it out. Yeah. It's worth it. Well, I think this was a proof of concept record. I think they had different experimental things they wanted to try and then it's like built songs around it yeah and then once they once they prove in this record like hey that sounds pretty good they then then blow it out later yeah um here there and everywhere is the next track i thought this was a classic beatles ballad with some excellent harmonies on it um it's far more traditional than the rest of the record i found um and i also put god i just have so much beatles love this uh show because yeah. also, Coop, I think the Beatles have some of the best love songs. I really do. Oh, they do. Oh, they do. And it goes back even further. You know, that goes back to the early days, too. Even though yeah. they're a little more like uh, popish, you know, for yeah. Ed Sullivan. Right. But yes. But yeah, they always had good, good love songs. Uh, mm. I always said She Loves You is a great love song, even though it's, yeah. it's, it's very it, I know it's a very catchy song. Right. But it's it. Yeah, I think they have some of the best love songs, and, and yeah. this is this is one yeah. of them. This yeah. is a great song. I agree. Oh, I, I agree. didn't know the stuff in here. Yeah, go ahead. I didn't know your McCartney stuff. Yeah, so this is vintage Paul McCartney, and he's the lead vocalist on this. So, yeah. I, again, they've kind of rotated now to McCartney again with this. Um, and uh, McCartney has said this is one of his favorite tracks. See, I did he, not know that. Yeah, I, I, I looked up some stuff, and he's, he's been quoted saying this is one of his favorite mm. tracks. I can see it. All right. I really see that. Uh, but McCartney, I think, was the most of the four Beatles, the most popish, you know, playing yes. it safer. Like, and he, yes. Yeah. Which is why I think he had the, the biggest solo career after of all of them. Yeah. Um, but there are touches of psychedelic as you listen to this song. It's touches, see, hints, yeah. hints of it. All right. Yes. Right. I mean, if you really listen, there's, there's a few hints of it along the way. Mm. Um, but the, there's harmonies and, and, Apparently, there's a series going around that that when McCartney was in talking to the Beach Boys, he was impressed with these harmonies that they were doing on their mm. tracks, or even beforehand, mm. and he wanted to do something like that on this album. So a lot of people, he, he's never McCartney's never been quoted as saying that, but some of the again the Beatles experts, who there's a ton of them out there, who have written nothing about the Beatles for their career, that's what they've they've mm. kind of inferred with this, and I can see it. I, I love that point. I never yeah. thought of that point until you yeah. mentioned it. I love that point. I think I think some of the best I'm going to go with male harmonies. Some of the best are Beach Boys, The Beatles, 
CSNY, yep. and then like '90s R&B, really, like Boys to Men and stuff. Yeah, the yeah. harmonies are just incredible. Yeah, it's interesting that that they're that they're sort of getting inspired by the harmonies of the Beach Boys because the harmonies on this record are just outstanding. Yeah. They did, and they did a good job with this. And when I talk about back a background vocalist, we're talking about multiple no. background vocals here. Yes. Yeah. Um. Which yeah. Mm. So, yeah. All right. Let's clear the decks, so to speak, and get into uh the track that makes it onto it. I have the soundtrack. I um I have this record. Right. Uh. They throw Ringo a bone, Yellow Submarine. Now they didn't. You know they don't throw him a bone in that they don't let him write it, but um, he's the vocal. He's the vocal on it, Yellow yep. Submarine. Uh, I do love Yellow Submarine. I think so. Okay, so I think where it fits in with this record because it's sort of it kind of sticks out a bit, Coop, in a way. Um, in that it's meant to be a children's song. I really love it, but what it's really showcasing is this sort of experimental side of the record, because this is where overdubbing becomes extreme. Yes, like with people's conversations, with like where 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 they talk about the band begins to play, and then they kind of put those those horns in, which sound like they don't sound like they're in a studio almost. Like the no, like they sound the, like you're out at a at a uh, yes stadium or a, a grandstand. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they have these overdubs and the clanking of glasses and that you even hear like the flute and like like instruments warming up and you hear people talking and horns and it's all this overdubbing of just like ancillary noise that creates the sort of world of the song, which they're going to do a ton of in Sgt. Pepper's and... Other bands are going to do as well. Pet Sounds did some of this. Now, they did some of this beforehand, obviously. They weren't inspired by this. But um, it was something in the air. So this whole sort of idea of overdubbing the stuff on top of tracks was sort of like what people were starting to start to mess around with. And the Beatles really took it to the extreme because even after Pet Sounds, Mike Love and all that, it's like, okay, well, we won't do that anymore. Yep. Um, so so they really kind of push it. Uh and and it's it's a fun it's a fun song and I think and I put in my notes I'm really feeling the short run times on these tracks quick hits and not long epics. Yep. I think by this part of the album I'm like wow these songs are pretty quick. Yep. Um, but yeah I mean I don't know it's an iconic song. You know I mean kindergartens around the world sing the song. Um, but it's 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 sort of the production side of it too is really experimental and innovative. With when you get do all the overdubbing and stuff yep. on this on this track. No, um, agree with you on that. I mean, uh, what do you think? I mean, this this song is often derided, I think, but I re- I really like it. I love this song. Um, it, a couple of things. This was a uh, this was a Lennon McCartney song, even though it's Ringo singing mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm, so uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, yeah, they threw Ringo a bone, but they gave him a Lennon McCartney song, uh, which is which is really good. Um, yeah. And as you mentioned, this became a, a, a movie, a cartoon, an animated movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll never forget, I watched this on for the first time on July 4th, 1976. It was the bicentennial, 4th of July. And it was a big deal in New York, and I had the flu. 
Oh, oh, Coop. I had the flu. We couldn't go see the boats. And uh, so my mom put this on. Uh, she, you know, she was, it was on TV that night. Uh, and so I, I'll never forget when I watched that uh, for the first time. I loved, I loved it. It was kind of like, you know, it was kind of a little bit of a darker cartoon in a lot of ways, just because of the way the the graphics were done in it or the animation was done. Um, mm. It was also people. This was a, a, what they call a double side A record uh, with Eleanor Rigby. So you know, a lot of times they'll release a single and there's an A side and a B side. It's the A side that's the um, the one that is the one. Hey, they want the the radio stations to play, but this one they kind of did a double A side, meaning both of them can play, get played, uh, get airplay on it. So, and but usually one they credited, it, I believe, to Eleanor Rigby when they go with sales, right? Like one yeah. side gets usually the A side gets picked, right? Yeah. I also think Ringo was the perfect guy to deliver the vocals on this. It was, yeah. Listen, yeah, he is the guy to deliver the vocals on this. I think you know, and you talked about the whole horn thing, and it reminded you being at a pier, a grandstand at yes. a pier. And the boat coming home, right? It's just that was just so well done, right? Um, and the use of the instrumentations, the sound effects in this, right? It was meant to be a children's song. Let's be yeah. this was meant to be a children's song, but there's so much more than just it's it's like this is a this is like a children's song that anyone can appreciate. The mantra effect of the chorus. We all you know it's a it builds as a mantra. You you just get hooked on it, right? Um, and I think it could have been the last side of this this side, but I think the Beatles wanted a darker song to finish this 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 first side up. Yes, yes. Uh, but I I really uh, adore this song. Um, now here's a this is where some controversy comes in with who did what on this song. So basically, they, they've asked Lennon and McCartney over the years about this, right? And what really this was a song that was amalgamated. Uh by two separate songs that one was being written by John Lennon, one was being oh, written right, okay. by McCartney. Uh, McCartney is the one who brought the chorus piece in. And then Lennon said, hey, this may be a good idea to kind of put him with this melody I did. So, All right. Yeah, so there's some, you know, again, it was kind of more, I don't think this was something where, they worked on it together. I didn't say it was contrary. They mm. worked on it together, but it was really two separate songs that they did. And if you mm, listen to it, mm. it very much has that, because when you go, <laughs> when you shift to the chorus, no doubt that happens. Um, oh yeah, yeah. And McCartney actually commented uh, that um, about the song. He says it's a happy place. That's all. Uh, we were trying to write a children's song. That was a basic idea. Uh, their working manuscript for the lyrics uh, shows a lyric actually uh, crossed out of this, right? So while they were working on this, I guess <laughs> Lennon hated something that McCartney wrote, and he said, uh, "I guess something got found." It's disgusting. Like we can't do this, right? <laughs> right. The Scottish singer Donovan. Actually contributed a line of this song. So okay. The, uh, the sky of blue and sea of green was his line. I, I, I Somehow they ended up using that line. He was apparently in the studio when this was happening and suggested it. Mm. And then Lennon also made a statement about the authorship. He said, it was both of us. Paul wrote the catchy chorus, but I helped with the blunderness a bit. <laughs> so, <laughs> But yeah, I, so I think this was, again, they were... It's showing the Beatles were off on separate things at this point, but they yeah. kind of came together on this one, um, which is, again, kind of. And then this is where I, I got to say George Martin had to play a key role in this and, and Jeff Emmerich as well, musically. So, I mean, because it was very interesting how they did this. It's interesting, too, because you listen to this song and like Octopus's Garden, like back to back. And it's like a very it's like a similar vibe. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And Ringo's involved with, and uh, Ringo's going to mm. sing that one. Yeah, Octopus Garden is a great yep. song. Uh oh, Yellow Submarine. <laughs> I love that. Great song. Great Best song. children's song ever written. Even as it does a children's song by the lyrics, I bet there's a bit of LSD on there. I'd like to see. <laughs> I'd like to see the Electric Mayhem do it. Oh, the mayhem! I did catch I some of that. I did watch it. Very well done. Oh, the mayhem! Love it. Yep. Um. All right, we got. She said. She said. Which we are closing out side A. Yep. Um, with this track. Um, what do you? What do you? What do you? I, I'll let Coop. You. I kicked off Yellow Submarine. So you kick us off on on this track. Yeah. Um, this is an incredible backstory with this song. Okay, I love this backstory. Yeah. So, and it actually was inspired by actor Peter Fonda, uh, who was oh, hanging wow. out with the Beatles on an, when they all had an acid <laughs> LSD trip. So let me kind of let me kind of set the stage for this. Um, this is going back a year earlier in 1965. They were touring. Okay, and this is when the Beatles were really they were already having some of the exhaustions of touring. So Brian Epstein, who was yes. the uh, late manager of the Beatles. Said, hey, why don't I rent a house in Beverly Hills for six days and you guys hang out there? Like, just hang out like we do at the media compound, right? Um, but the problem is, uh, it leaked out where they were. So, right. fans stalking the house and helicopters with a meteor flying over to say it's a friggin' mess, right? And they get police protection, right? But the advice they're given is don't leave. <laughs> like, we'll protect All you. All right, okay. Do what you guys need to do. We'll, we'll control. So, so they had some police protection, but the police, I don't think, knew what was going on inside the house, right? Or they kind of turned the other eye on that, right? Right. Uh, and they basically said, hey, let's have some friends over. So they have Roger McGuinn and David Crosby from The Birds, and Peter okay, Fonda yeah. comes in there, right? And um, hmm. the LSD acid piece comes in. Now, the story of this goes that. Um, Lennon and Harrison were the LSD users, okay? And okay. Ringo and Paul were not, okay? Um, right. And they're like, it's like, hey, guys, we're a band. Let's all, we, we're all for one, one for all. Guys, you need to kind of do this with us, right? So they, they, they managed to get Ringo to do some LSD. Here. Oh, God, According yeah. to things, Paul, um, Paul refuses, okay? So right. I don't know what happened. But apparently during this LSD trip, uh, George Harrison is thinking he's going to die. Oh, right? yeah, right. Right. And uh, Peter Fonda goes, yeah, I can relate to almost dying. I almost died because uh, I had a near, I was fatally, almost fatally shot as a youngster. Right. God, Peter Fonda. Jesus. Right. right. Yeah. Apparently that offended John Lennon. Okay. Right. If, if John Lennon said, you know what it's like to be dead? Who who put all that shit in your head? You're making me feel like I've never been born. And he wanted Peter Fonda kicked out at that point. Like he was damn. Yeah, Peter Fonda was like he pissed him off, right? But that inspired the whole lyrics by Lennon. Okay, because Lennon apparently, um, you know, so he wrote this song, but it was written from a different perspective. It was written um like this again. It's the song she said, she said. So it's written from a female perspective, and in the lyrics he says, uh. She, he goes, she said, I know what it's like to be dead. I know what it's like to be sad. And it's making me feel like I've never been born. And then he goes, I said, who put that draft in your head? I know what it is to be mad. So, like, that's, I guess, she is Peter Fonda, and the I is John mm. Lennon in that song, right? Mm. Um, And the other thing is, this was the last track for Revolver that was recorded. And apparently, uh, there was an argument over the musical arrangement, and Paul McCartney apparently walked out of the studio during the recording. So this is where it got a little tense towards Ooh. the end of this, right? 
Um, but it's a darker song at the end, right? It's a psychedelic song. It's a darker song at the end. And I guess that's what the Beatles wanted to close out this side. I, I really do. So that, I guess I, I understand why they put this one as the last one. Yeah. You know, if, if you're doing it. I, I thought there were other songs that would have been better for but but I understand why they did it. They wanted this darker end of this. Uh so because the next side's gonna flip flip it completely. Flip it over. Yeah. 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 So I didn't have I just had some basic stuff. Uh I liked it. Good good poppy track. Um you can hear the Indian influence with the sitar yeah. sounding guitar. Now the thing about it, it was a big thing for Lennon McCartney who wanted to produce a record where the instruments did not sound as they were intended. And this is sort of Emmerich behind this. And he's going to push this yeah. later with the French horn and the keyboards sometimes are out of tune. And it's sort of this idea that they wanted the, the they didn't want the instruments to sound like instruments, which gets to your point, Coop, about like this LSD trip and like wanting everything to be sort of turned on its head and, um, I think, though, like looking at it as a song, I think Ringo's drums here are very important. You make some really good points you make with the with the is this yes? Because I think it really gives the track a bit a, a bit of a a bit of a spine to the yeah. track. Because other than that, it's kind of just like flowing everywhere, you know. But I think that the drums really anchor it and give it a spine. I think he's really good on this track. Like I really like yeah. Ringo on this track. A lot. I, I love the point you make about that, and the point you make about like um, producing a record where the instruments didn't sound as they were intended. So you have this whole like lyrical backstory of this, mm. but now you have the musical, the music that's yeah. going to gonna support this, and and great points you make on this. And I and I can see maybe why McCartney got frustrated in the end with this. Yeah. I talked over the lyrics. It was probably more of. They were really going for something here, and maybe they just weren't quite on the same page at the end of this. Yeah, I mean, it could have been. Um, I think, too, at this point, I think some of the Beatles were just looking to try and find ways to argue with other members of the Beatles. Yeah. yeah. So I think it was some of that. Yeah. Um, but then, so then we flip the record over, we go to side B, and like Coop said, you could not have a different side A closer and side B opener. Right. Than what you have. Yeah. Uh, and I'll let you kick. I kicked off the opener to side A, so you kick us off with this uh, opener here, Coop. Yep. Uh, this Good Day Sunshine is a is a classic Beatles song. It's again, yes. it has a vintage Paul McCartney vibe to it, uh, and it's a very positive, like going from this dark end of you know we're talking about death, right? right, to this sunshine, right? In the next yeah, piece, yeah, right? yeah. And the critics panned this song because they like out of all the tracks, they said this doesn't really belong on this album, right? It almost felt like this was something they could have used with Sgt. Pepper in my book. Yeah. Um, but there was some inspiration with the story. Um, so again, Paul McCartney was hanging at John Lennon's house and he saw a sunny day pop up one day and he went over to Lennon's piano and uh he basically uh said, um, well, Lennon helped me write the song, it was basically mine. And Lennon said, admitted, he said, Yeah, this song was McCartney's, but I mean he threw a line in or, or two, right? On this. <laughs> so this again they were working together, but I think they still had this, this, this thing where really one would kind of bring the idea to the other, and they'd fill it in, which is very interesting. Um, McCartney said he was influenced by the Love and Spoonfuls hit "Daydream," and he was trying to get uh, a song in that vibe. Um, and the story goes that I guess um, Lennon and McCartney had also attended a uh, Love and Spoonful concert in London, and um, 
you know, so they were influenced with that. The, the Beatles also uh, were very high on the love and spoonful. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is that uh, Steve Turner, who's one of these Beatles uh, experts of the time, he says that the King's Sunny Afternoon may have been an inspiration for McCartney as well. Like, you know, all right, they do Sunday because they were influenced by a lot of these other British acts of this era, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another uh, expert, Walter Everett, who says, um, who really points out of this staggering of the four different guitars that are used here uh, in yes. a lot of these Beatles songs, like the Daydream track, I should say. Of, of Let me go back. Mm-hmm. Let me refer to that. The Daydream track on Love and Spoonful uh, by Love and Spoonful, it had this Beatlesque staggering of four different guitars. This song doesn't okay. have that. So no. McCarty didn't want to copy that, so he almost went the total opposite with this, where he also went with no guitars here right now. Uh, and then the other thing is, that's a little, this is just a, f- a fact, is um, McCartney played this for the uh, crew of the International Space Station um, when they were linking up. They, he actually did a live performance for them to wake wake up the crew on that space shuttle that was going to the space station. And to All the, right. So a lot of history with this song. Obviously, it's one that, you know... Very unique. Uh, the astronauts heard it live from McCartney, which was pretty cool. Oh, nice, nice. I uh, I didn't know all that background about the other songs. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Like I said there's a lot of these music musicologists. They're called. They they did nothing but try to analyze these yeah, the, songs. The... So these are just thoughts that they had, and I think it's more food for thought. I don't know if we actually will ever know the answer, but you can start to think. No. I, mean, I went back and listened to Daydream, and I could see some of that, what they were going with, too. Mm. But, but yeah, and then where they didn't, deliberately didn't go with it. Yeah, like, I, I kind of had similar thoughts to those, uh, that classic Beatles with the happy vibe. Great track. I put it almost doesn't fit the record, uh, which it is doesn't. similar to what it you totally were sort does. of saying. It doesn't, yeah. yeah. Uh, but... I think it's a great opening to a side. I mean, Good Day Sunshine as, yep. a, as a track one to a side is just brilliant. Yep. yep. But you compare it, right? So if I, if you compare it to track one side A, Taxman, it is like two totally opposite. You know, you have this proto-punk Taxman that's like highly political, really edgy, really sharp. Yep. And then you have Good Day Sunshine. <laughs> Which is like you know, to- it's they're like totally opposite, and 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 the song is almost all chorus. Like there's so much chorus in the song. Yep, yep. Um, but no, I mean it's really interesting. It's interesting. Well, it's interesting they decided to put it on the record and not just release it as a single. Um, but it's it's a, it's interesting placement uh, yep. as well. Like when you compare the two sides, like Taxman and and this as opening tracks, it's really interesting. Um, yeah. Especially when you get to the next song, "And Your Bird Can Sing," which has kind of like a more taxman sort of ripping guitar. Definitely does. Me. Definitely does. Yeah. Just sort of getting back into it. You know, you had this little palate cleanser, this little break with "Good Day Sunshine." Now you're kind of back into the record. Uh, harmonies and double tracking on the song are amazing. There's lots of like vocal layering going on. And and harmonies going on, they're really great. I thought the bass was really good on this. Really track. was, yeah, really was. Um, and has that good psychedelic vibe. I think that I really love the bass on this track. Oh, it's very underrated on that too. Mm. Yep, uh, definitely one. Um, that you know, and that's McCartney who was actually doing the bass work on here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the most part, yeah. So you're saying this is a this is a as a Lennon track? <laughs> yeah, this was a Lennon track. Um, and he said 
this is substandard work. I'm like, I love this track. This is a great song I on this album, by the way. Yeah. I think it was perfect as the second track uh, on this side. Yeah, I mean, maybe yeah, it would have yeah, been yeah, a good yeah. follow-up to Taxman, though. Right? It but, may be. Yeah, I think. But I think you need, you need after Good Day Sunshine, you need something to get you back into like the flow of the record, I think. Yeah, and, and this song is a little more darker than people will give it credit for. Mm-hmm. Right. So the story with this song goes is, a, is again, a John Lennon inspired track is John Lennon's first wife, Cynthia. Um, um, and he said basically what happened is he he got a gift from her and it was basically this wind up bird. Right. That was in paper. Right. So this, they had this right. wind up bird, but the winder was kind of hanging outside the paper. Right. And yeah. I guess when she was giving him the gift, she wound the bird up. Right. And then and this thing is like starting to sing as he's opening this thing up and he's like, what the fuck do you give me? Basically. <laughs> uh, and this was, I think, very representative of Lennon's marriage. Now was in this is when Lennon's marriage was starting to crumble. Right. Uh, because actually, uh, Kenneth Womack, another one of these Beatles musicologists, said this is representative of Lennon's state of mind. Like, since he didn't understand him, why, why would you give him a gift like this? Right. Uh, which, you know, you, you hear a lot of divorce. Sometimes that's a big thing. You get a gift and, you know, your partner gives you a gift. And they, they can't like, what were you thinking? Like, I, you, I wouldn't want mm-hmm. this. Right. And then when you look at the lyrics of this song, it's it's it, it rep- here's what it says. It says, and your bird can swing, but you can't hear me. You can't hear me. I mean, it's yeah. like so it, it has a darker thing on this uh, and it fits that story. So if that was the inspiration for this. I get it. And it's a short song. It's a two minute song. It's I think it's the shortest track on the album. Uh but again, right. it's very sad. I love this track. This is a very underrated track. Mm, no, it's a good track. I mean, like I said, I think I think it's a good side two or uh yep. track two for side for a yep. side track. Yeah. Now this is a track I love. I adore. Yeah. I'll let you kick us off, Will, for no one. Yeah, we go back. This is more of a McCartney piece, mm-hmm. um, and um, this is Baroque pop. I mean, through and through. This is that classical music rock sa- sound. I think it's possibly the best two-minute track ever. I yeah, yeah, a, yeah. I, yeah. I think it's a perfect middle track. Um, I don't know much more I can add. I, you know, you have some good points. I want to talk about. I want you to talk about the music piece of it. It's a masterpiece. This song. Oh yeah. Um. It's probably one of the most underrated songs in the Beatles portfolio. I think this is again a stellar song. Yeah. Um, where just again oh, that, yeah. that Baroque pop comes right through. Um, but I want you to talk. You have some really good points. I'm not going to steal your thunder on that particular on some of the stuff I'll going on with this it. song. Yeah. No, no, you go ahead. Well, I. So McCartney said in an interview that he wrote it in a bathroom in the Swiss Alps, which is, I don't know. I mean, it sounds good. I don't know how true it is, but that's what he said. Well, you know, I was, uh, you know, sitting on the bowl here. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> so that's what he said. Uh, very now, this gets to Emmerich and people talking about not wanting stuff, instruments to sound like what they were meant to sound yep. like. Yep. And it's a very unconventional arrangement with some really trippy piano that sometimes has like it's circus like at times other times it's really discordant like not yep. in tune um and Alan Civil is the French horn player and he came into play and what McCartney wanted him to do and Emmerich was play these these notes that weren't really meant for the French horn so and and Civil was a bit like 
was a bit put off by this because he's like, well, but I'm a classically trained French horn player. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't want to play these notes. Like, they're going to sound bad. And they're like, hey, play them or, you know, play them or get out, essentially. And uh, and so he did. And so what, he, what, what Civil said is that they wanted him to play these notes that weren't really meant for the instrument. But, you know, he did it, obviously. And he said in doing it, he wasn't, all that happy with it because it led to a lot of cracks in the in the note in the 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 note being out of tune. Um, but like McCartney and stuff and Emery, they loved it. They're like ex- exactly, they're perfect. And and it it what it, it has this really discordant nature to the track, where the track itself has all this stuff going out of tune, all these notes that aren't supposed to be being played, and it, and it really adds this sort of like kind of trippy sort of like you know uh, otherworldly sort of something's not quite right vibe uh uh and and this is what they were sort of after is they wanted these instruments to really be pushed and make sounds that they weren't supposed to make uh and and that's thanks to to Alan sort of going with it and going okay well I'll do this and and doing it and and uh, interestingly enough, Lennon and Harrison aren't on this track at all, so they 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 are not on it. Yeah, this is a this is a McCartney song. Yeah, is when you hear it, yeah. And and it's it 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 gets to that point where they wanted these instruments to sound, you know, to make sounds that they weren't supposed to make, and it's really into this French horn where that shows up. So if you listen to the French horn, he they're they're forcing him to make to hit notes. That it's not supposed to hit, um, which is really interesting yep. to me. And Alan was like, "Really, you want me to play that?" And they're like, "Yeah, go, man." Yep. Um, and it was, it was just, it was great. So, yeah, no, it's it's a great track. I love this track. It's I do too. Track. And and you know, I think this was the one track that used the French horn. Yep. And you know, the album uh, which would follow this uh, was Sgt. Pepper, and it's known yeah. for a lot more use of the French horns there. Yes, the Beatles were considered sort of pioneers of bringing this sound into a uh, a traditional, more rock type of thing. Um, so I mean, I think this laid the foundation for working more with the French horn. Uh, and uh, you know, on their next album, which they used several musicians for the yes. French horn, but um. You know, I don't think they brought back. I don't think what's his name came back for it. Um, Alan. I don't think Alan brought him back for it. So <laughs> it's just really interesting because when you hear Alan, well, not here, I should say, when you read Alan talk about it, it's like here's this classically trained, and, the, and he comes in, he's like, "You want me to play what? It's yeah. gonna sound really bad." And they're like, "Exactly. Yeah, that's what we want." Yeah, it's really, it's really funny. Yeah. Um. But Alan too, like he he his role in the song was a lot bet- larger than he thought originally. He thought he was just gonna do a little bit of fill, and he's like yep. key to the song, and he yeah. didn't really know that coming in. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna clear the lane quickly to get a little NBA parlance because Will's got a lot of great stuff on this song. Um, so I I just gonna say. Just call this track "Drugs" is my first note. We're talking about Doctor Robert, right? Doctor Robert. <laughs> just, just take the title "Drugs." Um, I love the guitar and the druggy bridge. The bridge has this modern pop vibe to it. Coop, I found. Yep. 
it was a very sort of modernized bridge to the song. Uh, very experimental in its execution, I thought, and how the song was sort of laid out. In, oh, and absolutely. Made. Yep. Um, but yeah, like it's just very trippy and it gets to that whole psychedelic idea. Uh, but Coop's got bountiful information on the song. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to leave, I'm going to clear the lane for you here, Coop. Yep. All right. So, um, this, uh, there's a little dispute on who, well, it, Lennon wrote the song, but McCartney says he had much more of a prominent role than I think Lennon gave him credit for is what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and they bring a character in this time, right? So I don't know if Lennon brought the character in. Or, that's maybe when McCartney brought the character in because this is, the character is this guy, Dr. Robert. And what the song is, it's about a New York physician known for dispensing amphetamine injections to his patients, right? This is what the song is about, right? Right. Um, Now, uh, one of these musicologists, I mentioned Walter Everett, he says, when you look at this, this has some of the most overt drug references of any Beatles song published up to this point. And he's right. When you listen to that, there's no doubt about it. And uh, he said the interesting thing is when they actually recorded this song, and you listen to it, like what they're telling about this guy. They actually portrayed a guy to be a saint. <laughs> like, yeah, hey, that's right. Hey, right. Uh, now, Steve Turner, another one of these Beatles uh, experts, said um, he might have been. They might have been inspired by Rolling Stones and Aftermath, which uh, okay, where McCartney. I'm sorry, when Lennon actually uh, was it? I don't know if it was Lennon or McCartney. One of them was in the sessions with that, right? Okay. And uh, they have a song on uh, Aftermath called "Mother's Little Helper." Right. Um, and so the ironic thing is, uh, you know, they were spending time in each of the, in each of the sessions, but supposedly um, Jagger also attended some of the revolver sessions. So I don't think it was like they stole. All but right. They, they, the, the theory is they heard this and they said, well, yeah, let's see if we could do something like yeah, 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 yeah. About, about drugs. But the big story is who is Dr. Robert? OK. All like, right, yeah, let's they, get it. So there are theories about who Dr. Robert is, right? Some of them are not as well known. The, the big one is uh, this guy, Barry Miles, and this is the common theory. Uh, Dr. Robert Fryman, who was a New York doctor, and he was known for dispensing uh, B12 shots uh, laced with amphetamines to wealthy clients. <laughs> nice. Right? Um, another is, uh, they said, uh, like Steve Turner, another one of these Beatles experts, says uh, probably it was Freeman, but there was some in the Beatles circle. Dr. Robert was a reference to a guy named Robert Frazier, who was an art gallery uh, owner, who was a well-known source of drugs for nice. cocaine, right? And he was friends with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. Now, oh, yeah, he would be. The other one, this is probably the most interesting one, is Bob Dylan is, is some link to this. Oh, yeah, okay. Who introduced the Beatles to pot in 64. We're going to talk about pot later, but yeah. go ahead. Yeah. Um, then there's this other guy, uh, Robert McPhail, who's a character in a book uh, by Adios Huxley oh, called Island. Okay. Island. And the other theory is it's this guy named John Riley, who was a dentist friend of uh, John and Cynthia Lennon, as well as George Harrison and his wife, Patty Boyd. So there's a lot nice. of theories of who Dr. Robert actually is. Wow. Yeah. Love it. Yeah, uh, my guess. I wonder if it's a combination of all these things. The Bob Dylan one was interesting. <laughs> so, that is very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Great track. Again, it's, it's oh, a yeah. very, uh, to me, it's a uh, it's a catchy track, but it's a darker track when you look at it, too. It's a lot. Yeah. You know, even though it's a little more has a, a, a kind of a, an upbeat melody, it's just it is a little more of a darker track. And all the references to drugs in here, you can't. Uh, oh, you can't miss it. You can't miss it. Yeah.
Oh. So we're moving from from the track that I think instead Dr. Robert just called it drugs. And yep. we move to another George Harrison track. Yep. I want to tell you. Yep. Uh so we'll get you to kick us off here, Coop. Yeah, this was George Harrison track. Uh, this was he had three tracks on this album, which was the most to date he had on any mm-hmm. album. Um, and apparently the story is he drew inspiration from his experience. Again, George Harrison and Lennon were the LSD guys, and and he was drawing a lot of inspiration, (laughs) uh, from his use of LSD. He created this what I call a psychedelic pop track. I guess is the way to put it. Where oh yeah, yeah, in this, um, in my opinion, the lyrics of this song really talk about communication. And the inaccuracy of words of conveying general emotion. When you kind of listen mm. to those track uh, there, uh, it's actually a very well written song in my book. Uh, with that, I think uh, it is. Um, it is one of the again. You want to look at one of the hidden gems of this album. Um, mm. And you like I said, you just uh, you just kind of look. Uh, There's just lyrics like I want to tell you I feel hung up, but I don't know why. I don't mind. I wait forever. I got time. So it kind of emphasizes this whole communication thing in here um but a very underrated track for sure you know there's a lot of people say if you listen to this a lot of people can see a little folk influence in this song okay yeah kind of listen to it yeah um so um it's it's interesting on that when you kind of listen to that um you have to kind of really listen to that because this again folk was kind of was never really the beatles thing but maybe they, they, you know, I could see of all the Beatles who would put something a little folkish mm. in there. It would be, mm. it would be Harrison. Mm. Oh yeah, I mean, I found this track. Um, it's more of that similar to we we're looking at the French horn with Alan Civil with the keyboard. It, it at times you get this sort of like kind of out of tune keyboard, or at least out of tune with the song, and it has this sort of darker side to it, like a dark trip sort of side to it you f- i i put you feel like you're melting on this track like it's a definite lsd yeah. vibe yeah on this track um i put it's a lot about his mind playing tricks on him like it's a lot of uh like you're talking about hallucinating and lsd and 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 it's interesting we keep talking about those sort of psychedelic references and i put a bit floyd like in my notes and yes. floyd floyd's really put stuff out in 68. Yep. So after this record, so it'd be interesting. I didn't look, but it'd be interesting to look at like interviews with Glimmer and uh, Waters Yeah. to see how influential this album was for them. That's why I go back. This is really one of the foundational albums of the whole psychedelic rock movement. I'm not saying yeah. it was the first, but it was a foundation no. album. It really set a lot of influence going going forward with that. Some very heavily psychedelic, some psychedelic touches, you know, in it too. Um, yeah. You know, a couple of the points that I didn't make is the double track vocal is key in this too. Yes, Harrison's yep. using a double track vocal here. They uh, did that on on Taxman. Yeah, he's he's double tracked, which is really well done. Yeah, yeah. They're all using hand claps on this one too. Yes. Uh, you know, and even Ringo's playing with some maracas on this song too. It's a very yes. Weird, yeah. Yep. That's right. Yep. Um. And I think it's McCartney who's doing the the keys on this song too. So, uh, but yeah, really, really, again, this is again one of these real gems on the album. I think it's a it's a deep track for sure, but but mm. one uh, one uh, you can't make. Uh, well, it fits this experimental side of their yeah their music yeah. Um, and to get back into that, we go got 
to get you into my life, which is a great song. Uh, McCartney said it was an ode to pot. <laughs> That's what he said. Uh, yeah. So this is their love song to pot. Harrison had a love song to LSD. So now it's a love song to pot, I guess. Um, it's drug track. Uh, it kind of has this darker note where it's like he needs it, which is sort of, I don't know if that's what he was going for, but it's, it's like how desperate the chorus sounds like the got to get you in my life. And yep. to have it know it's about drugs, it's really, it has this darker side where it's sort of, yeah, like, like, like he, like he's got to have it in his life, which is just, it's interesting um, how that plays out. I mean, I don't know if that's accurate, but it's sort of like how he sings it and then to know the background of it. Yeah. Um. So I love the vocal on the chorus. It's this pleading vocal and it's sort of out there. He really goes for it. It's really sort of like this this sort of pleading, really emotional vocal. Um. I thought it had kind of a big band vibe to it, Coop, with the with the horns in a major way in this track. Um. Which the horns are going to play huge in their music yep. moving forward. Yep. But yeah, Sergeant Pepper, big, yeah, yeah. I thought I had like a big band vibe, um, very upbeat, quite poppy. I really like this track. Um, but yeah, like a lot. There's a lot going on musically on this track. Uh, that's gonna be like themes they're gonna explore later. But I thought this this is a really good track. Yeah, I I agree. It's a very good track. Um, you know, McCartney supposedly wasn't the LSD user, but he was the pot user. That's what well, really, really, we'll make that very yeah. clear. And you know, when you, you you look at the you look at the first line of the song, "I was alone, I took a ride." Oh yeah, <laughs> right. It just that just sets the table. So you know, a lot of people think, "Well, he's uh, you know, if you if you weren't familiar with the Beatles story at all, you may say, "Well, yeah, he's alone, he took a ride, and he's thinking about some woman." No, it's not the case at all. This is a, this is an absolute drug track, but it is such a, a great song. It is a very vintage style uh, McCartney sound to this song. Uh, Lennon acknowledged this was mostly Paul who wrote the, this song. Okay, so yeah, he did this. It's Lennon McCartney credited, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I agree with you on the horns, the trumpet, and the sax. The trumpets are really, really the yes. key part of this song. Um, and you look at what the Beatles were doing with horns. Again, they weren't the first to put horns in, but no. you look at a band like Chicago that came along like three years later, which. They integrated that type of they integrated a trumpet sound into their everyday music. Mm. So I think, you know, again, this had a lot of influence on people going forward with that. Uh, mm. I think it was deliberate. They put this track in, in between um, the closer, uh, which, is, okay. which is tomorrow. And I want to tell you tomorrow. No, no. I want to tell you is the track before it. And tomorrow never knows is the closer. I think I think they deliberately put this in between the two to okay. kind of. You know, I I made the comment I could have seen this as the opening track, but I I, I see what they yeah. did here too, you know, because uh, you know, it, it's just kind of like I think it would have you needed something to kind of get you to that final song. So, um, I, I do really I do really love this song, and and you know, this song's been always a little bit panned. The Billy's version has always been a little bit panned because when Earth yeah. Wind and Fire did it for the Sgt. Pepper movie, mm. um, they. Earth, Wind, and Fire did an incredible version of that, and that's just again another band that was very horn centric. So, mm. a lot of people consider the Earth. A lot of people say the Earth, Wind, and Fire version is oh, better, better than the Beatles one. I, mm. This is a great version. I'm not taking anything away from this. Mm. This is just fantastic. Yeah, I was just thinking we were talking about the opening track. I mean, since was the Taxman was the one and only Harrison opening track. 
I wonder if it was just something that they negotiated because they were so starting to fracture at this point, just to like please Harrison. You know what I mean? Yeah. So maybe they're like, oh, but you know, don't worry, we'll put your track first. Yeah. So instead of putting a track there, because musically, I wonder if it was more, oh, you know, let's 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 do it for George sort of thing. Let's make yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a good point you make on that. Because if it's his one and only opening track, you wonder if it was just to try to get him on board more or... Yeah. Yeah. Because you're right. I mean, this could have been a good opening track uh, as well. Yeah. Um, but it could have been just, you know, something for George. Um, and his all George's songs in here are really good. Um, I love George Harrison. So Yeah, no, I, I agree. It, uh, it definitely was... Um... You know, as well, uh, for sure. Now we lead into the song that we had in our recent episode on best closing songs. Yep. Is we got Tomorrow Never Knows. Yep. Um. So, yeah, we talked about this, and I don't have a problem with uh, this being a, a closing track at all. Um. Mm. It is, and I know you're really going to get into this. This really sums up the album. Mm-hmm. Uh, be, you know, this album, if you look at this album as um, experimental, groundbreaking, however you want to put this, um, it uh, it is just it, an amazing song. And I said this song somehow works as a closing mm-hmm. track, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it works well. Now, I mentioned uh, Phil Collins has used this as his closing track to the Face Value album. Yes. So Phil Collins, and he kind of keeps it in the vibe of the of the of the of the Beatles. To me, and you're going to get into this a lot more, and I want you to I'm going to clear the floor for you on this one. This becomes an all time influential track. It's probably a track you'll never hear live that much. It's it's not one I think you want to hear live either. This is just mm. one that's suited for the studio. Um, and you have a lot of good notes on it. So I'm going to clear the floor for you on this one. We're clearing the lane. Here we go. Um, this is actually, even though it's the last track on the record, it's the first track they worked on. I can see it. Again, they were trying to experiment, and this is this is all experimentation in this song. Uh, before I get to how they're experimenting and why I say Emmerich might be one of the most influential engineers yep. in rock history, yep. is that I think this is one of the most influential songs in rock history. Like, when you look at what happens in this track and what it inspires later on, like, it is incredibly influential i think uh i think it rockets this this whole record into the stratosphere like i think it makes the record yep this track i mean it's a great record otherwise don't get me wrong but this really puts it over the edge um what they did was the band would take these instrument loops like guitar loops sitar loops and and they would at night get super high (laughs) and and just keep and loop it and like loop a guitar riff or something or sitar riff. And they would take the tape and they would loop it for like hours and just start laughing at the loop because they were like high out of their mind. Right. And that's where the loop comes into this song. So they kept taking these like sitar and guitar loops and like looping it, looping the tape and looping the tape and looping the tape. And would take it back to wherever they were staying at night and listen to it and would laugh about it. 
and they brought it in to 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 Jeff Emrick, and they're like, check this out, this 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 loop that we've done, and he's like, oh, this is really cool, and what they had to do because Emrick has talked about this, how everyone's like, wow, Revolver had all these like really modern production tricks and innovations. And he's like, people talk about how modern these innovations are. What we had to do for the loop in Tomorrow Never Knows is we had the tape and we actually had to use a pencil to like wind it over itself in order to make the loop. So they're doing all this weird stuff with like playing the tape and looping it on itself. And that loop becomes the core of the song. And I think, like, like you said, Coop, it's an excellent point. I think this song is sort of a culmination of all the experimental stuff they've done on the whole record, but like in one song. Yeah. Yep. So they got the they got the 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 tape loop, they got this great post production work, they got some stuff going on with the vocal, yep. they got some compression, they got overdubbing, they got Indian influence. It's very druggy. It, 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 that's why you look at this, it it's the whole pack, it wraps up the whole album well. With this, even I, I think, sound wise, yeah. it's not a sound wise. It may not sound like a, a closing track, but it is when you really look it at is. it. And that's why, yeah, yeah. It it's totally like everything you've listened to on the record has built you up to this point, yeah. Yeah. really, and it just sort of pushes music beyond the point of return. Like this is precisely like we don't have to play this song live. Who cares what we do? Because it's just overdubbing, like stuff that sounds like bird sounds on top of it and then they're like got that weird they got that sitar loop and it is and like stuff sounding like it's backwards and it's just crazy yep oh totally the vocal effects are amazing on this on this track i think yep. um, I do too. It, it's just great i think what it does is it, it just turns it's like a creative man i put it, it's a creative masterpiece it, it really is. It really is. A it is so good. Yeah. It, it, even if you look at it as a creative sandbox that evolved into a creative masterpiece. Mm. Yeah. And they 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 worked on it a lot. Like I said, it was the first it song, the, but it ended up it was yeah. The first but, song, and they just sort of kept adding to it and playing with it and then listening to it and bring it back to Jeff and Jeff would be like, "How about we do this?" And it was just like it just kept like building on itself. And it's such a great track. You look at how they evolved from I want to hold your hand. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. The evolution that, was amazing. Even the evolution on the one album, because you look at this track, and then you look at um, Good Morning Sunshine, and then you look at Tax Man, and it's like all this stuff is like, how are these all on the same yeah. record? Yep. Um, no, it's great. I love it. Yep. So final thoughts on the record coop on Revolver. Yeah, yeah, I didn't put my notes in there. I apologize, but I'll give you them. So when you look at the history of the Beatles uh, portfolio and their albums, most of the experts will put this in the top two. Like, oh, and, yeah. and, you know, it's easily in their top two. The Beatles did not have gra a big amount of Grammy success during their time. Mm. Um, they really didn't, right? And I, I think, and I think a lot of it had to do. They were either seen as these rebels early on. To like these, and maybe they're still seen as rebels later on, but the sound just maybe wasn't encompassing. Um, the follow-up album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Band, Club yeah. Band, would win the album of the year in '68. But in '67, okay. this was nominated for album of the year still. Okay, but it lost. 
So good. now I'm gonna read you the albums, the other four albums. Oh that were Jesus! Here we go. I, I want to see who you think won it. Okay. Okay. And by the way, I think the Beatles should have won this. Okay. So well, Frank Sinatra is a man of his music. Oh, okay. Barbara Streisand's "Color Me Barbara." The Ooh. soundtrack for Doctor Zhivago. Oh, what is happening here? Yeah, and a very underrated, very underrated album. Uh, Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. What? What now, my love? Yes. Which one, which one won the album of the year? Didn't 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 her did Herb win it? He did not win it. Oh, he's won. Uh, he's won some Grammys. Herb. Herb is great. Because I know that this this the Herb record came up when I was reading stuff about this record. It was yeah, but it did not win. I may have won. Um. But it was a huge. It was a. By the way, when when that album came out, Herb Albert uh, and the Tijuana Brass, what now, my love? It set the record for most uh, number one, most weeks at number one on the Billboard charts. Wow! It was it was a big time out, but it did not win. It what, did what? not win. No, it was Frank Sinatra. Frank. Like I'm not gonna okay. knock Frank. I'm not gonna knock Frank. I love Frank, and Frank had that was a second year old. Frank had won for September of my years the year before. Oh come uh, on! You know, a man in his music uh, was the. Against Revolver. Come on. But I think when we go back and look at this today, people will probably say nothing against Frank, who had who had some great songs on that album. You know, "Come Fly with yeah. Me" is on that album. Witchcraft. Oh. Uh, I got you under my skin. Ooh. But and, and it's a, by the way, it's a massive album that that Frank Sinatra album. That's like a three part oh, yeah. one. Uh, you got to look and say Revolver. Like got got. How did Revolver not win this today? Yeah, what are we doing? What are we doing? You know, this is one where I just don't know. I mean. Uh, those were five very that even that Doctor Zavago uh soundtrack was very good by the way, um mm. but I I don't think it was in the category of the other four, um but yeah Revolver Revolver lost um uh, but Revolver much many many years later got its got its due uh because it got it got it got one of those honorary Grammys years later uh I believe it's like a like the Grammys have these like lifetime achievement things they give out. Um, yeah right, and uh, I believe they got they it got somehow. What's the name of the award here? They have a name for it. Um, it was it was in the Grammy Hall of Fame. It was put into that Grammy Hall of Fame. We talked about that in the last right. show. So that's what happened is it got in in nineteen ninety nine. So you know it got it, but it, but it probably it got some level. Of, you know we talked about a lot of these great albums. Let it bleed, you know. Um, mm. Pet sounds. He didn't get Grammy love back then uh, because I don't think the Grammys were the Grammys were even out of touch back then. It shows. Yeah, yeah. It really does. So I mean, nothing against Frank, but for an album, there, there was no question that Revolver was the best album that year. And Herb, oh, yeah. I would have put second. Herb's album is very good. I would have put him second, but but yeah. So great. It's a it's a it's a fantastic album. Um, I know you got some more thoughts here of this as well. Yeah, I, I I love this record. Like I said, I think it's my favorite Beatles record. Um, it's full of sort of short shots of creative explosion. I put so it's more. I find I see this record more as a record of bursting ideas than like a like a record as such. Uh-huh. Uh, and it really expands beyond music what artists can do in a studio. And I think. What's really interesting and why it's one of the most influential records of all time is it shows what can happen when you take a talented band like the Beatles and you you free the you have them totally free to express themselves. So you don't have to worry about touring. 
They don't have to worry about playing these songs live. They don't got to worry about any of that. They're just totally free to do whatever they want, It'll, and you can just see the creativity. Just who does that out. these days? No one. Like, everyone has to think no one. You got to tour an album, yeah. Well, I think the technology too, because you could do these records, and you could just yeah. play like a backing track or yeah. something. Prince is the only other person I could think of who did that. Oh, Prince, man. Yeah, like like around the world a day, he didn't tour with, from what I remember. Yeah, you know, a couple of those. Yeah, so. But like, it's it's just total free expression. And uh, the Dolly connection is that she's going to be having uh, Paul and Ringo on her, new, on her next record. And a, a Beatles reunion uh, for all practical purposes. You know, Paul and Ringo have done work together over the years. Uh, Paul was, uh, Ringo was even on um, Give, Give My Regards to Broad Street soundtrack. But now they're the two surviving Beatles. So yeah. I, think that is a, I think that is a big deal. Uh, that's a big sc- score by, Go- by Dolly. Yeah, I... I've seen pictures of Ringo. Like he looks immortal. Like he, he looks so good. When, when you watch him with the All Star Band, he really he takes a secondary role, and he really spotlights yeah. the other music. In fact, he brings in a second drummer most of the time, and it's almost like Ringo's the quarterback setting the beat. But you know, yeah. he lets these other musicians really shine, and and you know, he doesn't try to. He, uh, and he and he's and he can still hit the drums. That's what I'm just telling you. He doesn't bring in a second drummer because he can't hit the drums. It, it's because he is trying to spotlight a lot of these other musicians here. And it's uh, he is. Um, I I actually took my mom to see Ringo Starr. She was just she was like, uh, this was back about 15 years ago. So mom, you're, you're yeah, 60, well, and she loved it. My well, mom was like, yeah, I got yeah. She was just like. She's like we live, we live in our Beatles days, but she was getting into all the uh, the other musicians that were on there, even like. Well, Joe he Squire. looks he looks great. He looks great. Uh, he's he's in his eighty. Ringo's in his eighty. Paul looks Paul looks pretty good too, to be honest. Paul Paul's starting to show some age, but Paul is great too. Uh, and I think this oh, is yeah. wonderful. What we're gonna see with Dolly. I think this is a this is I'm really looking forward to that track. Oh, I am too. Yeah. Um, final thoughts on the cigar coop. Where are you at? I am smoking really slow. I am too. So. One thing about the My Father Labors You, uh, 100 Años, I love a lot of times the best part of the cigar is in the first two thirds. This is one where the last third, every it just the, the last third is actually the best part of the cigar because it just maintains right. the richness. Um, you know, you got some coffee notes, um, you got a little bit of cedar and you got a little earth, but there's a richness to these coffee notes in, in the final third. Uh, there's still some chocolate. There's even a tiny bit of what I call stone fruit in there. Yeah. Um, this is a, this is a, this is a, this is the Corona Extra size I'm smoking, which is the shorter size. Um, this is the um, the size that measures uh, five and a half by forty eight. A lot of people like the Lonsdale size, which is six and a half by forty four. This is a box press version too. Okay. Uh, I just adore this cigar. Um, I have smoked quite a bit. I will throw I'll throw another one in for you uh, in your package. Ooh. Uh, because I think you need to, you know, Ooh. enjoy this. This is a age you know, six months later still performs great. This is a masterpiece by Pepin, uh, and it's just, uh, it's just fantastic. I love that blend a lot, and I, I uh, have talked to Coop about this. I love the the Petit Robusto to, is my favorite. Yeah, and this is a different blend. This, from what I understand, this blend was all the, the Nicaraguan wrapper um, on this one. Um, so. But yeah, it's I love the you Petit Robusto. You and I are in agreement. That is the best size. I know it's the box press torpedo that got number one. Uh, yeah. From a, but 
I agree. There's no question. It's the petite Robusto in the core line. And uh, this has got a little more oomph to it, too. Um, it's okay. Really, they did really well. I'm glad. You know, and they picked this blend. They they And they basically tweaked this blend, right? But they picked it because it was um, Labor Hughes named after Pepin's father. Um, yes. He has his origins back with Petit's uh, father. And I forget what the uh, – it was something – oh, it was – yeah. It was something – there was something – I don't remember. I should remember his, and I don't what the connection with his father was with that. But the Labor Hugh brand was was meant in honor of his father. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um. So in my opinion, this is this is uh, an absolute uh, masterpiece. Uh, Labor Hugh is French for the jewel. Oh. But I think there well, was something with the French connection. I don't remember what it okay. was. Okay. Well, it's great uh, cigar. Yeah. Yep. I'm excited. I got my. Pork tenderloin. I got still got a bit left for me, really. Um, smoking great. I really like it. What I like about a coupe, so you start off, you got some pepper in there and a lot of sweetness. The pepper sort of like leaves the cigar kind of around after the first third. And then it's it's very it's like a very sweet and meaty cigar. Like it's got a lot of body to it. I really like it. It's really good. It's that sweetness and richness that that works really well together. I think. I smoked it uh, when I was up in Minneapolis in April with Garrett and uh, Matt. So my second trip to Minneapolis, I smoked. I thought it was really good. Hmm. Um, I I like the original pork tenderloin. I've only had a couple. See, I haven't of them. had that one to compare. Um, but I was never like I never felt it was this. Everyone thought it was this epic blend. It never really wasn't hmm. bad. It was really good, but but I wouldn't put it. Um. Just I, maybe I didn't have enough of it, right? Or the ones I had maybe were aged out, so I don't want. But this I thought I thought it was a very good cigar. I thought it was a very good cigar that they did with that. Oh yeah, I think I think age will make it even better because on the final third it starts to get a little bit bitter. Um, I remember that too. Yeah, I remember that as well. But still a great cigar though. Oh like, yeah, really I, good. yeah. Uh, and if you love the pork tenderloin, you're gonna love it anyway. Yeah. So. And I, I give Pete a lot of credit for what he's done with the Tuxels. I think he's really done a great job with the with that. It's kind of like a horizontal brand he's created. Mm. You know, he's, and he's taken different. He's got two more cigars coming out at the trade show under the Tuxel series. Okay. So, so I think it, he did a really good job with that. And, um, you know, I think making this cigar or something was a great reason to come to PCA. Yeah. Um, you know, I, you know, there's a theory with these cigars that are PCA exclusive. There's one theory is, hey, Announce the cigar weeks earlier, so you come, right? Yeah. But then there's this other theory. Is like, well, okay, Pete, Pete, and these people are coming. I'm going to reward these people. Okay, you yeah. guys signed up, and here they go. So that's the other side of the theory with that. So, new music, forty-five. Yes. Yeah. Um, want to mention our friends first at Cigar Hustler, uh, located in Deltona, Florida. Uh, great store to go to. A uh, wonderful selection of tried and true brands and boutique brands, including uh, the uh, Postani brand, which is uh, the brand uh, by the uh, Mike and his brother Greg. Yeah, and uh, the store is fantastic. I always say it: um, great lounge, great humidor, great staff. I mean, it's just I just can't say I always can't say enough about it, and I'll say it every week. Uh, I pick on those guys sometimes, but I think they know we we have some fun with it too. Um, so they've done great with that. But if you can't get to Cigar Hustler, get on their email list and follow them on social media because they get a lot of limited releases in place. 
And um, what's great about that is uh, they announce what those limiteds are before, you know, and, you know, you basically they go fast. So um, I've gotten several limiteds over the uh, past couple of years from that. And now I see so, like I got my Espinosa. Uh, I got my Espinosa uh, knuckle sandwich 55s because I saw a social media oh. post. So, yep. So, yeah, you want to move fast with that. Uh, they don't fool around. Um, so, yeah. Um, great guys. So I'm looking forward to seeing them at PCA next month. Yeah, I, uh, I got a, I, well, I, um, I assume people well, may not have seen it, but what they just posted is, so you have the, uh, Roma craft was it the Volstad, that new one. Yeah. They have a sampler with the pre-releases in the sampler. Yeah. So it's an interesting thing that Volstead, cause Garofalo had it too for a while. They changed the, that's not going to be the final Volstead. Skip changed the wrapper on it. Ooh. But, it. but I don't know why he did it, but I think they already made these cigars. So, you know, they, uh, they've made them available in the sampler. And uh, I think it's a great way to, to kind of get it. And uh, from all I heard is there's nothing wrong with that blend. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, you well, know, you get a, I've heard even more rare. Yeah. So I think it's a very a great way they do that. Um, and, he's, do that. and he's, and I got the email this morning. He's got the new Postania cigar, the new size at, at the shop now. Yeah, it's yeah, online they did, now. They, oh, it's online because they did the launch online. last week. They did the launch yeah. last week at theirs. They actually did the launch first in um, up in Virginia, um, which they picked on me for not uh, <laughs> not attending. No, for not mentioning. Oh, not announcing. Show that. Yeah, not yeah, really yeah. Show that. So I, I, you know, but I told them. I said, you know, we know, you know, I told them we, hey, so we gave them a promo on the show. They were happy about it. Yeah. Uh, but then they did the launch at their store last week, and now they've put it on there. So they've always been really fair, I think, about their, their brand, Postani, is they've really taken care of retailers who have invested in that brand. Uh, and that's a great – that's a very unselfish thing those guys are doing. They could easily just put them all in their store, but that's not how you're going to grow your brand. And, and they no. know what they're doing with that, yeah. Yeah, so so it's finally online there. Um, so check that out. Um, Side A. So Side A, Coop. Yes. I have Post Malone. Well, I'm not a big Ooh. Post Malone guy. Yeah. But I was listening to this track, Morning, off of his new record, Austin. And it's just a great summer track. It's very cruisy. Uh, much like the rest of the record, it's all about girls and tons of drugs. So get ready for that. I think that's a theme in the record. Uh. And it's a, a bit darker. It's kind of like, you know, the morning after a big party sort of thing. And it's just, I don't know, it's just a very cruisy track. And I really like it. And I'm not a Post Malone guy. Good yep. summer track. Yeah. Um, side B. Taylor Swift and Ice Spice do uh, a new version of her song Karma, which was on Midnight's. So Ice Spice is getting huge, Coop. Huge. Yeah. Uh, she's put out a lot of... A lot of records um, recently, a lot of tracks. So uh, it's kind of fun with Ice Spice on it. Uh, I like the track in general. So I think this track is really going to blow up. Uh, so you might want to check that out. Yeah, there's a disco vibe to this song, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a disco vibe with this song, which is pretty kind cool. Kind of a disco year. Yeah. It's the year, of... year disco came back. Yep. Yep. Um, and the album archaeology homework is I have the white album. Yeah. So we're gonna do it, but it's just way too big. So listen to it yourself. I mean, it's got my guitar gently weeps, which I adore that song. Epic song, uh, legendary performance at the Hall of Fame. 
Oh. And uh, Happiness is a Warm Gun, which is another favorite of mine. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, check that album out. It's just too big for us to do. Yeah. Unless we, uh, we'd be... Uh, I don't know how we somehow pay homage to the White Album. Maybe we find some other ways. Uh, but, yeah, um, but yeah, a uh, a great, a great, uh, great, great album. You'd almost have to do a two-parter. You'd have like, to do seriously. two-parters, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But a great record. But, yeah, that's it, man. 100 so, in the books, Coop. We're, we're yep, yeah, we're going to go to 200, you know, and beyond. So uh, we start the next part of this journey next week. I think we are going to have a show next week. So stay tuned. We'll confirm what that is. Interestingly uh, enough, is this is uh, episode over 400 for the, the jukebox name, if you count previous jukebox. There you go. It's like 400 and something. Yep. So a great job with that. Um, was the jukebox, uh, you know, that was the whole foundation for this, you know, show. And uh, it's been a great round. This run has been great. We've we've done some amazing shows. And, you know, I kind of go back and we every week, Dave and I would say great show. We, we really, you know, I could say on some of the other shows, we've laid some eggs. I don't think we've laid an egg on this show. So, uh, no, man. We really haven't, and the you know, uh, it's a different show for the cigar industry. It's where the cigar industry talks music, and That's we, right. uh, you know, it's a, it's. I think it's the most unique show out there, uh, and uh, people love it. So uh, as long as I love doing it, you love doing it. As, as long as everyone's happy, we'll keep doing it. No, uh, and and thanks to you, Coop, because without your support, it wouldn't be as much growth as it has. Like moving over was perfect. No, but I mean, without your thanks, hard, all without, thanks to you. Well, a lot of your hard work too. Dave does an incredible amount. Like I tend to do more of the post production piece. Uh, Dave does. Dave lays the foundation for all the prep work, and this show works because of the prep work that goes into it. You you can't go into this show. Um, sometimes we can wing it on other shows. This one's a tougher one to wing because there's a lot we have to kind of do. Um, I just mm. wish we could play the songs on here. We can't, unfortunately, in the just the, today's era. But I think we found a way to do it. People like if I forget to put the link for the playlist in, I get messages right away. So I know people oh, take the yeah. playlist in, and I use some of these playlists, you know, my own personal playlist, you know, when I drive to Florida or whatever. So mm. it's always a good mm. one to do. Mm. No, but thank you, sir. Yeah, it took a hundred shows to do a Beatles show, though. I thought, I thought it was interesting. Yeah, yeah I so, why? I, it, well, that's why I said I thought a hundred was a good one to to celebrate a big album. Mm. So uh, we have some more album archaeologies and more show ideas. So stay tuned on that. Um, I know we'll be doing some shows. Like July is going to be when when PCA happens. We'll probably have to take a couple weeks off because I'll be traveling. But but uh, for the most part, you know, we'll we'll, we'll crank it back up again. Mm. Love it. Yeah. All right. You can, yeah, close this out, man. Yeah, that's going to wrap up Primetime Jukebox, episode 100 to the Annals of History for this first weekend in June. Thank you to everybody. Thanks to our sponsors, our friends, uh, our audience, of course. Without you guys, it wouldn't be possible. Um, you know, can't thank you guys enough. Uh, we will see you as we start the next 100 episodes. So take care, everybody, and we'll see you soon. <laughs>